Hey, Made for Another World podcast listeners. Just a quick heads up before you continue with this episode. We thought it was only right that we suggest some listener discretion. Due to the wartime nature of the book discussed in this week's episode, there is some graphic descriptions that will be read and discussed, and we thought it was only right that we'd mention it before the episode starts. Nothing too bad, nothing too crazy, just enough for us to give a small heads up. But with that, thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Made for Another World podcast, where each week we have a highly formal and academic discourse regarding a vast array of Christian literature and stories. I don't even know what a discourse is. (laughs) I don't either. (laughs) With Aaron Alvarado and me, Jacob Simmons. This is season two, episode two, Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption by Laura Hillenbrand. Laura is an American author of books and magazine articles, with her two best-selling nonfiction books, Unbroken, and Sea Biscuit, an American Legend. They've sold over 13 million copies, and each was adapted for a film. And in our time tonight, we're going to read some snippets and portions of Unbroken to explore a little bit of the main character's life and his eventual faith. As always, we won't be reading the entire book, but if you're interested at all in reading more, we'll drop a link to the book for you in the show notes. And Laura starts off by just giving a a brief overview of everything that we're about to see. All he could see in every direction was water. It was late June 1943, somewhere on the endless expanse of the Pacific Ocean. Army Air Force's bombardier and Olympic runner Louis Zamperini lay across a small raft, drifting westward. Slumped alongside him was a sergeant, one of his own plane's gunners. On a separate raft, tethered to the first, lay another crewman, a gash zigzagging across his forehead. Their bodies, burned by the sun and stained yellow from the raft dye, had withered down to skeletons. Sharks glided in lazy loops around them, dragging their backs along the rafts, waiting. The mid had been adrift for 27 days. Borne by an equatorial current, They had floated at least 1,000 miles deep into Japanese-controlled waters. The rafts were beginning to deteriorate into jelly and gave off a sour, burning odor. The men's bodies were pocked with salt sores and their lips were so swollen that they pressed into their nostrils and chins. They spent their days with their eyes fixed on the sky, singing White Christmas, muttering about food. No one was even looking for them anymore. They were alone on 64 million square square miles of ocean. A month earlier, 26-year-old Zamperini had been one of the greatest runners in the world, expected by many to be the first to break the four-minute mile, one of the most celebrated barriers in sport. Now, his Olympian's body had, had wasted to less than 100 pounds, and his famous legs could no longer lift him. Almost everyone outside of his family had given him up for dead. On the morning... Of the 27th day, the men heard a distant, deep strumming. Every airman knew that sound. Pistons. Their eyes caught a glint in the sky. It was a plane, high overhead. Zamparini fired two flares and shook powdered dye into the water, enveloping the rafts in a circle of vivid orange. The plane kept going, slowly disappearing. The men sagged. Then the sound returned, and the plane came back into view. The crew had seen them. 
With arms shrunken to little more than bone and yellowed skin, the castaways waved and shouted, their voices thin from thirst. The plane dropped low and swept alongside the rafts. Zamperini saw the profiles of the crewmen, dark against bright blueness. There was a terrific roaring sound. The water and the rafts themselves seemed to boil. It was machine gun fire. This was not an American rescue plane. It was a Japanese bomber. The men pitched themselves into the water and hung together under the rafts, cringing as bullets punched through the rubber and sliced effervescent lines in the water around their faces. The firing blazed on, then sputtered out as the bomber overshot them. The men dragged themselves back onto the one raft that was still mostly inflated. The bomber banked sideways, circling toward them again. As it leveled off, Zamperini could see the muzzles of the machine guns aimed directly at them. Zamperini looked toward his crewmates. They were too weak to go back in the water. As they lay down on the floor of the raft, hands over their heads, Zamperini splashed overboard alone. Somewhere beneath him, the sharks were done waiting. They bent their bodies in the water and swam toward the man under the raft. There's more to this book? <laughs> <laughs> if that's not a hook of a preface, I don't know what right. it is. Golly. I think I had my breath the whole time you read that. Also, I just want to say, I appreciate his name. <laughs> Louis Zamperini. Like, that's yeah. just like, if that's not meant for a book and a story, what is? It really is. <laughs> it's like something you'd make up yeah. for the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you don't know anything about this story, and that's what you read... I think you have to be hooked. Yeah. I think you're like, okay, I'll stick around for a little bit, even right. if I don't know yeah. anything about this. I have to stick around. There's mm-hmm. too much there. He was an Olympian. Uh, it looks like somebody's going to rescue them, and now they're shooting at them. <laughs> Sharks. Yeah, uh, everything. <laughs> yes, truly. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yep. Mm. Well, so what we'll do is kind of just give a, a brief 30,000-foot view of his life, and so kind of hit pockets along the way, but... We'll start around the time that uh, he's in the Olympics. Uh, so on August 7th, Louis lay face down in the infield of the Olympic Stadium, readying himself for the 5,000-meter final. 100,000 spectators ringed the track. Louis was terrified. He pressed his face to the grass, inhaling deeply, trying to settle his quivering nerves. When the time came, he rose, walked to the starting line, bowed forward, and waited. His paper number, 751, flapped against his chest. At the sound of the gun, Louis's body, electric with nervous energy, wanted to bolt, but Louis made a conscious effort to relax, knowing how far he had to go. As the runners surged forward, he kept his stride short, letting the pace setters untangle. Lash, one of the other runners, emerged with the lead, a troika of fins just behind him, and Louis floated left and settled into the second tier of runners. The laps wound by, Lash kept, kept leading, the fins on his heels, Louis pushed along in the second group. He began breathing in a sickening odor. Uh, he looked around and realized that it was coming from the runner ahead of him, his hair a slick of reeking pomade. <laughs> Feeling a swell of nausea, Louis slowed and slid out a bit, and the stench dissipated. Lash and the fins were slipping out of reach, and Louis wanted to go with them, but his body felt sodden. As the clumps of men stretched and thinned into a long, broken thread, Louis sank through the field to 12th. Only three stragglers trailed him. Ahead, the fins scuffed and settled into uh, Lash, roughing him up. Lash held his ground. But on the eighth lap, Salminen, one of the other runners, cocked his elbow and rammed it into Lash's chest. Lash folded abruptly in, in evident pain. 
The Finns bounded away. They entered the 11th lap in a tight knot looking to sweep the medals. Then, for an instant, they strayed too close to each other. Salminen's leg clipped out of Hockert. As Hockert stumbled, Salminen fell heavily to the track. He rose, dazed, and assumed running. His race, like Lash's, was lost. Louis saw none of it. He passed the deflated Lash, but it meant little to him. He was tired. The fins were small and distant, much too far away to catch. He found himself thinking of his brother Pete, and of something that he had said as they sat on their beds years earlier. A lifetime of glory is worth a moment of pain. Louis thought, let go. Nearing the finish line for the penultimate time, Louis fixed his eyes on the gleaming head of the pomaded competitor, who was many runners ahead. He began a dramatic acceleration. Around the turn and down the backstretch, Louis kicked his legs, reaching and pushing, his cleats biting the track, his speed dazzling. One by one, runners came up ahead and faded away behind. All I had, Louis would say, I gave it. As Louis flew around the last bend, Hockert had already won with Lettinen behind him, but Louis wasn't watching them. He was chasing the glossy head still distant. He heard a gathering roar and realized that the crowd had caught sight of his rally and was shouting him on. Even Hitler, who had been contorting himself in concert with the athletes, was watching him. Louis ran on, Pete's words beating in his head, his whole body burning. The shining hair was far away, then nearer. Then it was so close that Louis again smelled the pomade. With the last of his strength, Louis threw himself over the line. He had made up 50 yards in the last lap and beaten his personal best time by more than eight seconds. His final time, 14.46.8, was by far the fastest 5,000-meter run by any American in 1936, almost 12 seconds faster than Lash's best for the year. He had just missed seventh place. As Louis bent, gasping over his spent legs, he marveled at the kick that he had forced from his body. It had felt very, very fast. Two coaches hurried up, gaping at their stopwatches on which they had clocked his final lap. Both watches showed precisely the same time. In distance running in the 1930s, it was exceptionally rare for a man to run a last lap in one minute. This rule held even for the comparatively short hop of a mile. In the three fastest miles ever run, the winner's final lap had been clocked at 61-2, 58-9, and 59-1 seconds, respectively. No lap in those three historic performances had been faster than 58-9. In the 5,000 well over three miles, turning a final lap in less than 70 seconds was a monumental feat. But in his 1932 Olympic, uh, well, in his 1932 Olympic 5,000 victory, in which he clocked a record-breaking final time, Lettinen spun his last lap in 69.2 seconds. But Louis had run his last lap in 56 seconds. <laughs> After cleaning himself up, Louis climbed into the stands, and nearby. Adolf Hitler sat in his box among his entourage. Someone pointed out a cadaverous man near Hitler and told Louis that it was Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda. Louis had never heard of him. Pulling out his camera, he carried it to Goebbels and asked him if he'd snap a picture of the Fuhrer. Goebbels asked him his name and event, then took the camera, moved away, snapped a photo, spoke with Hitler, returned, and told Louis that the Fuhrer wanted to speak, wanted to see him. Louis was led into the Fuhrer section. Hitler bent from his box, smiled, and offered his hand. Louis, standing below, had to reach far up. Their fingers barely touched. Hitler said something in German, and an interpreter translated, Ah, you're the boy with the fast finish. 
So again, so much happening there. Mm-hmm. You've got kind of this, like what we'll see. I mean, the whole theme of the book is unbroken. Mm-hmm. Like he is, it seems like you can't break this guy. Well, you see little snippets here. Mm-hmm. Like he, that final lap, to run it that fast <laughs> on your final lap. Like right. that's insane. Most most people that were breaking records couldn't even do that in their first and <laughs> second laps, you yeah. know? And so to see that, but then also that, the whole drama of mm-hmm. you've got Hitler in the stands watching him, like bent over the, the rails watching him and then brings him up to talk to him, <laughs> not knowing that like everything that's about to go down in the world. I mean, that's just, yeah. there's so much in this story already, <laughs> man. And even the little stuff, and I, I think I was tracking right with that, how like he kind of dropped back because of the stench of the dude's hair and then the two guys in front of him that collided. Like, I mean, that could have been... He could have been close to that, but the fact that he dropped back because he didn't want to smell all the dude's head. <laughs> I mean, all these little things that fall into place, and I have a feeling we'll see more of that too, kind of, maybe that was a little bit of God's sovereignty there, you know, or something like that. Yeah. So. Man, I like it. I, can you I imagine, though? Breathe, God. I know. Can you imagine, though, Hitler speaking to you like that? I wonder if, if people were able to feel the evil right. beforehand. Yeah, you got to wonder, like, yeah. before it all went down, like, what what was that countenance like, yeah. you know? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, again, we're, we're skipping way far in the book, but uh, we're talking about uh, just, like, what it's like to be, uh, because he, he becomes a bombardier, and uh, he's up in these planes. And so this is just a little bit of what it's like. It says, when they first went up over Hawaii, the men were surprised to learn that their Arctic gear hadn't been, uh, hadn't been issued in error. So when they, they're in Hawaii and they're given coats and you know, things to bundle up, they're like, this is ridiculous. Uh, but it says, they hadn't been issued in error. At 10,000 feet, even in the tropics, it could be sharply cold. And occasionally, the bombardier's greenhouse, where he would sit, the windows would freeze. Only the flight deck up front was heated, so the men in the rear tramped around in fleece jackets, fur-lined boots, and sometimes electrically heated suits. The ground crewmen used the bombers as flying ice boxes, hiding soda bottles in them and retrieving them ice cold after missions. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know why I kept that in, but just to give some humanity to it all. Yeah. But uh, So, he goes from the Olympics. Everything starts to happen with World War II. He's not drafted, but he uh, he gets he goes uh, to to just serve. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, thinking, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go and you know serve my time and come back. But he's always got his eye on the Olympics. Like he thinks that's what I mm-hmm. want to do. And so even like in Hawaii, he just runs around the island a couple of times and um, just to keep ready for the Olympics, yeah. not knowing that this is going to go on, this the Second World War is going to go on for a long time. Right. Um, but so that just gives you a, a little picture of what it's like in these uh, B-24 bombers, I believe. I think so. I think we'll see it. <clears throat> uh, but Laura goes on just a little bit further. <clears throat> these bombers that they were in. Most of the time, stricken Pacific bombers came down on water either by ditching or by crashing. Crewmen who crashed were very unlikely to survive, but ditching offered better odds. Depending on the bomber, 
the B-17 and its soon-to-be-introduced cousin, the gigantic B-29, had wide, low wings that, with the fuselage, formed a relatively flat surface that could surf onto water. Their sturdy bomb bay doors sat flush to the fuselage and tended to hold in a ditching, enabling the plane to float. The first ditched B-29 not only survived, it floated onto an Indian beach completely intact the following day. The B-24, Louis' uh, bomber, was another story. Its wings were narrow and mounted high on the fuselage, and its delicate bomb bay doors protruded slightly from the bottom of the plane. In most B-24 ditchings, the bomb bay doors would catch on the water and tear off and the plane would blow apart. Less than a quarter of ditched B-17s broke up, but a survey of B-24 ditchings found that nearly two-thirds of them broke up and a quarter of the crewmen died. For B-24 survivors, quick escape was crucial. Without sealed fuselages, Liberators, that was their nicknames, uh, the bombers, they sank instantly. One airman recalled watching his ditched B-24 sink so quickly that he could still see its lights when it was far below the surface. Every airman was given a May West life vest, but because some men stole the vest's carbon dioxide cartridges for use in carbonating drinks, <laughs> some vests didn't inflate. Life rafts were deployed manually from inside the plane. Crew crewmen could pull a release handle just before ditching or crashing from outside a floating plane. They could climb on the wings and turn raft release levers. Once deployed, rafts inflated automatically. But these survivors had to get to rafts immediately. Airmen would later speak of sharks arriving almost the moment that their plane struck the water. In 1943, Navy Lieutenant Art Reading, Louis' USC track teammate, was knocked unconscious as he ditched his two-man plane. As the plane sank, Reading's navigator, Everett Allman, pulled Reading out, inflated their May Wests, and lashed himself to Reading. As Reading woke, Allman began towing him toward the nearest island, 20 miles away. Sharks soon began circling. One swept in, bit down on Allman's leg, and dove, dragging both men deep underwater. Then something gave way, and the men rose to the surface in a pool of blood. Allman's leg had apparently been torn off. He gave his mate west to Reading, then sank away. For the next 18 hours, Reading floated alone, kicking at the sharks and hacking at them with his binoculars. By the time a search boat found him, his legs were slashed and his jaw broken by the fin of a shark, but thanks to Allman, he was alive. Allman, who had died at 21, was non nominated for a posthumous medal for bravery. Everyone had heard stories like Reading's, and everyone had looked from their planes to see those sharks roaming below. The fear of sharks was so powerful that most men, faced with the choice of riding a crippled plane to a ditching or bailing out, chose to take their chances in a ditching, even in the B-24. At least I would leave them near the rafts. The military was dedicated to finding crash and ditching survivors, but in the sprawling Pacific theater, the odds of rescue were extremely daunting. Many doomed planes sent no distress call, and often, no one knew a plane was down until it missed its estimated time of arrival, which could be as long as 16 hours after the crash. If the absence went unnoticed until night, an air search couldn't be commenced until morning. In the meantime, raft-bound men struggled with injuries and exposure and drifted far from the original crash site. For rescuers, figuring out where to look was tremendously difficult. To keep radio silence, many crews didn't communicate any position during flights, so all searchers had to go on was the course the plane would have followed had everything gone right. But downed planes had often been flying over huge distances and may have veered hundreds of miles off course. Once a plane was down, currents and wind could carry a raft dozens of miles a day. Because of this, 
Search areas often extended over thousands of square miles. The longer rafts floated, the farther they drifted, and the worse the odds of rescue became. The most heartbreaking fact was that if searchers were lucky enough to fly near a raft, chances were good that they wouldn't see it. Rafts for small planes were the size of small bathtubs. Those for large planes were the length of a reclining man. Though search planes generally flew at just 1,000 feet, even from that height, a raft could easily be mistaken for a white cap or a glint of light. On days with low clouds, nothing could be seen at all. Many planes used for rescue searches had high stall speeds, so they had to be flown so fast that the crewmen barely had a moment to scan each area before it was gone behind them. <laughs> can you imagine the options? Like, I just, golly, man. Well, you can ride this plane out into the water or jump into the water with the sharks where you're going to end up anyways. Like, oh, man. That's, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want a part of that. <laughs> Golly, man. And if you try to ditch <clears throat> with, or try to ditch with your plane, if the bomb bay doors catch, <laughs> the plane's blowing up. What do you, gosh, man. I, so I wonder how many, how many planes like have, are at the bottom of hmm. oceans. That's a good question. I mean, it just sounds like they were just disposable, essentially. Like, I don't... <laughs> it seems like it. I didn't, I didn't realize that that was just super common, that they would just ditch them. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't think I did either. Seems wonder like if a the waste. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, and this gets into, like, the philosophy of war, so maybe we know yeah. nothing about that. But, right. like, you do, you do see throughout time, like, World War I, crazy high casualty rate mm -hmm. world war ii is still crazy high but not as high as world war one and so on like it drops and drops mm -hmm. until like the most recent wars have like in the 30,000 60,000 range right. uh, which 40 million for world war ii sounds well, it's not that bad right but uh so i wonder if it has something to do with that like there was almost more care of life as yeah. time gone has gone on. Yeah. So at this time, it was just like, yeah, just fly planes out there. We, we need to bomb these people right. no matter what. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Make it happen somehow. Yeah. yeah. Man. So maybe they were disposable in a to sense. To an extent, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, talking about that, uh, kind of the, the rescue part of it, it says the improbability of rescue coupled with the soaring rate of accidental crash has created a terrible equation. Search planes appear to have been more likely to go down themselves than find the men they were looking for. In one time frame, in the Eastern Air Command, half of the Catalina flying boats attempting rescues crashed while trying to land on the ocean. It seems, that, it seems likely that for every man rescued, several would-be rescuers died, especially in the first years of the war. With every day that passed without rescue, the prospects for raft-bound men worsened dramatically. Raft provisions lasted a few days at most. Hunger, thirst, and exposure to blistering sun by day and chill by night depleted survivors with frightening rapidity. Some men died in days. Others went insane. In September of 1942, a B-17 crashed in the Pacific, stranding nine men on a raft. And within a few days, one had died, and the rest had gone mad. Two heard music and baying dogs. One was convinced that a Navy plane was pushing the raft from behind. Two scuffled over an, an imaginary case of beer. Another shouted curses at a sky that he believed was full of bombers. Seeing a delusory boat, he pitched himself overboard and drowned. 
On day six, when a plane flew by, the remaining men had to confer to be sure that it was real. When they were rescued on day seven, they were too weak to wave their arms. There were fates even worse than this. In February 1942, a wooden raft was found drifting near Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean. Upon it was the body of a man lying in a makeshift coffin that appeared to have been built on the raft. The man's boiler suit had been in the sun for so long that its blue fabric had been bleached white. A shoe that didn't belong to the man lay beside him. No one ever determined who he was or where he had come from. Of all the horrors facing downed men, the one outcome that they feared the most was capture by the Japanese. The roots of the men's fear lay in an event that occurred in 1937 in the early months of Japan's invasion of China. The Japanese military surrounded the city of Nanking, stranding more than half a million civilians and 90,000 Chinese soldiers. The soldiers surrendered and assured of their safety, submitted to being bound. Japanese officers then issued a written order, all prisoners of war are to be executed. What followed was a six-week frenzy of killing that defies articulation. Masses of POWs were beheaded, machine-gunned, bayoneted, and burned alive. The Japanese turned on civilians, engaging in killing contests, raping tens of thousands of people, mutilating and crucifying them, and provoking dogs to maul them. Japanese soldiers took pictures of themselves posing alongside hacked-up bodies, severed heads, and women strapped down for rape. The Japanese press ran tallies of the killing contests as if they were baseball scores, praising the heroism of of the contestants. Historians estimate that the Japanese military murdered between 200,000 and 430,000 Chinese, including the 90,000 POWs in what became known as the Rape of Nanking. Every American knew, every American airman knew about Nanking, and since then, Japan had only reinforced the precedent. Among the men of Louis' squadron, there was a rumor circulating about the atoll of Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands, a Japanese territory. On Kwajalein, the rumor said, POWs were murdered. The men called it Execution Island. It is a testament to the reputation of the Japanese that of all the men in one fatally damaged B-24 falling over Japanese forces, only one chose to bail out. The rest were so afraid of capture that they chose to die in the crash. Mm. Man, I don't... (laughs) Can you imagine being so terrified of something that you would just rather die in a plane crash like man and and they had have known this going into it right like i mean there's there's a sense to where they knew what they were getting into i guess or or being made to get into i guess to an extent man that's i have so much anxiety just listening to that (laughs) thinking about that oh man yeah (laughs) when anybody who knows this story knows like we're hitting on all the things that are ultimately about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, even Execution Island. Uh, Louis spent some time there. Uh, but So I hope I'm not spoiling anything for anyone <laughs> who's listening. But uh, it is, it, like if you think about everything that we know about uh, the improbability of people being rescued if they crash on the water, sharks, all of that, the w- number one most terrifying thing to all of them uh, was being captured. Mm-hmm. And th- so how that all fits into the story is just, it's just insane. Mm-hmm. Well, he goes on, she goes on, excuse me, and writes, 
Some men were certain that they'd be killed, and others lived in denial. For Louis and Phil, Phil was uh, one of the sergeants. He's going to be uh, actually one of the pilots of the B-24. Uh, they were just buddies all throughout, but says there was no avoiding the truth for them. After only two months and one combat mission, five of their friends were already dead, and they had survived several near misses themselves. Their room and icebox, inherited from friends whose bodies were now in the Pacific, were constant reminders. Before Louis had left the States, he'd been issued an olive drab Bible. He tried reading it to cope with his anxiety, but it made no sense to him, and he abandoned it. Instead, he soothed, the, he soothed himself by listening to classical music on his phonograph. He often left Phil sprawled on his bed, pinning letters to Cece on an upturned box as he headed out to run off his worries on the mile-long course that he had measured in the sand around the runway. He also tried to prepare for every contingency. He went to the machine shop, cut a thick metal slab, lugged it to Superman, that's their B-24, and plunked it down in the greenhouse in hopes that it would protect him from ground fire. He took classes on island survival and wound care and found a course in which elderly Hawaiian off in which an elderly Hawaiian offered tips on fending off sharks. Open eyes wide and bare teeth make football-style stiff arm bop shark in the nose, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and like everyone else, Louis and Phil drank. After a few beers, Louis said it was possible to briefly forget dead friends. Men were given a ration of four beers a week, but everyone scoured the landscape for alternatives. Alcohol was to Louis what acorns are to squirrels. He consumed what he wanted and when he found it, uh, what he wanted when he found it, and he hid the rest. In training, he had stashed his hooch in a shaving cream bottle. Once deployed, he graduated to mayonnaise jars and ketchup bottles. He stowed a bottle of local root gut uh, called Five Island Gin, nicknamed Five Ulcer Gin, in Radio Man Harry Brooks's gas mask holster. When an MP tapped Brooks's hip to check for the mask, the bottle broke and left Brooks with a soggy leg. It was probably for the best. Louis noticed that when he drank the stuff, his chest hair spontaneously fell out. He later discovered that Five Island Gin was often used as paint thinner. After that, he stuck to beer. <laughs> In the early days of 1943, as men died one after another, every man dealt with the losses in a different way. Somewhere along the way, a ritual sprang up. If, it didn't, if a man didn't return, the others would open his footlocker, take out his liquor, and have a drink in his honor. In a war without funerals, it was the best they could do. Mm. I can only imagine trying to find ways to suppress the feelings and everything that you're going through out there. I mean, golly, man. I don't even... <laughs> this book is leaving me speechless in, in all, at all corners, but I don't even... I don't even know how to comprehend how to how to deal with that. Like you said, all these, what? How do you phrase it? With no funerals, you know. I mean, just golly, man, just your buddies, just left and right, just gone, man. But the 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 little right there at the beginning, the tried to read the Bible but didn't quite get it. Like you see that beginning of what we're gonna kind of see. Mm -hmm. Like he he needed comfort somewhere, and obviously he found it in things he didn't need to. But anyway, we'll get to the rest yeah. of it, I guess. But well, and. You'll have to hold on to, to both of those, too, because later on in life, too, he, he deals with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's kind of the main struggle after the war. And so already, I mean, we see both of those things kind of emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see which one wins out. Okay, moving on. This is now in the May of, uh, in the May, in May of 1923, 23, 43. 
sometime around 2 p.m., Green Hornet, which is their new B24, uh, just a little bit of backstory. It was constantly brought back for service errors and uh, you just needed to replace so many different things on it. Um, and so uh, it was like commonly referred to as like just the worst plane out there. Well, so some they get shot. There's like 200 and something bullet holes in Superman, the plane that they had. Mm-hmm. And so now they're flying out on the Green Hornet and everybody is like, no, this is a mistake. <laughs> but in May, sometime around 2 p.m., the Green Hornet reached the search area to search for another plane. So Louis on a plane searching for another plane. About 225 miles north of Palmyra, clouds pressed against the plane and no one could see the water. Phil dropped the plane under the clouds, leveling off at 800 feet. Louis took out his binoculars, descended to the greenhouse, and began scanning. Phil's voice soon crackled over the interphone, asking him to come up and pass the binoculars around. Louis did as told. They remained on the flight deck just behind Phil and Capernal. While they searched the ocean, Capernal asked Phil if he could switch seats with him, taking over the first pilot's duties. This was a common practice, enabling co-pilots to gain experience to qualify as first pilots. Phil assented. The enormous Capernal squeezed around Phil and into the left seat as Phil moved to the right, and Capernal began steering the plane. Well, a few minutes later, someone noticed that the engines on one side were burning more fuel than those on the other making one side progressively lighter. They began transferring fuel across the wings to even out the load, but suddenly there was a shudder. Louis looked at the tachometer and saw that the RPMs on engine number one on the far left were falling. He looked out the window. The engine was shaking violently. Then it stopped. The bomber tipped left and began dropping rapidly toward the ocean. Phil and Capernal had only seconds to save the plane. They began working rapidly, but Louis had the sense that they were disoriented by their seat swap. To minimize drag from the dead number one engine, they needed to feather it, which means to turn the dead propeller blades parallel to the wind and stop the propeller's rotation. Normally, this was Capernal's job, but now he was in the pilot's seat. As he worked, Capernal shouted to the new engineer to come to the cockpit to feather the engine. It is unknown if he or anyone else specified which engine needed feathering, It was a critical piece of information because a dead engine's propeller continues turning in the wind. It can look just like a running engine. On the control panel, there were four feathering buttons, one for each engine covered by a plastic shield. Leaning between Capernal and Phil, the engineer flipped the shield and banged down on a button. The moment he did it, Green Hornet heaved and lurched left. The engineer had hit the number two button, not the number one button. Both leftward engines were now dead, and number one still wasn't feathered. Phil pushed the two working engines full on, trying to keep the plane aloft long enough to restart the good left engine. The racing right engines, pulling against the dragging liftless side, rolled the plane halfway onto its left side, sending it into a spiral. The engine wouldn't start. The plane kept dropping. Green Hornet was doomed. The best Phil could do was to try to level it out to ditch. He grunted three words into the interphone. Prepare to crash. For Louis, there were only jagged, soundless sensations. His body catapulted forward, the plane breaking open, something wrapping itself around him, the cold slap of water, and then its weight over him. Green Hornet, its nose and left wing hitting first at high speed, stabbed into the ocean and blew apart. As the plane disintegrated around him, Louis felt himself being pulled deep underwater. 
Then abruptly, the downward motion stopped and Louis was flung upward. The force of the plane's plunge had spent itself and the fuselage, momentarily buoyed by the air trapped inside, leapt to the surface. Louis opened his mouth and gasped. The air hissed from the plane and the water rushed up over Louis again. The plane slipped under and sank toward the ocean floor as if yanked downward. Louis tried to orient himself. The tail was no longer behind him, the wings no longer ahead. The men who had been around him were gone. The impact had rammed him into the waste gun mount and wedged him under it, face down, with the raft below him. The gun mount pressed against his neck and countless strands of something were coiled around his body, binding him to the gun mount and the raft. He felt them and thought, Spaghetti. It was a snarl of wires, Green Hornet's nervous system. When the tail had broken off, the wires had snapped and whipped around him. He thrashed around against them, but couldn't get free. He felt frantic to breathe, but couldn't. In the remains of the cockpit, Phil was fighting to get out. And when the plane hit, he was thrown forward, his head striking something. A wave of water punched through the cockpit, and the plane carried him under. From the darkness, he knew that he was far below the surface, sinking deeper by the second. He apparently saw Capernaum push his big body out of the plane. Phil found what he thought was the cockpit window frame, its glass missing. He put his foot on something hard and pushed himself through the opening and out of the cockpit. He swam toward the surface, the light coming up around him. He emerged in a puzzle of debris. His head was gushing blood and his ankle and one finger were broken. He found a floating hunk of wreckage perhaps four, four feet square and clung to it, and it began to sink. There were two life rafts far away. No one was in them. Capernaum was nowhere to be seen. Far below, Louis was still ensnared in the plane, writhing in the wires. He looked up and saw a body drifting passively. The plane coursed down and the world fled away above. Louis felt his ears pop and vaguely recollected that, the, at, that at the swimming pool at Redondo Beach, his ears, his ears would pop at 20 feet. Darkness enfolded him, and the water pressure bore in with bore in with greater and greater intensity. He struggled uselessly. He thought, hopeless. He felt a sudden excruciating bolt of pain in his forehead. There was an oncoming stupor, a fading, as he tore at the wires and clenched his throat against the need to breathe. He had the soft realization that this was the last of everything, and he passed out. He woke in total darkness. He thought, this is death. Then he felt the water still on him the heavy dropping weight of the plane around him. Inexplicably, the wires were gone, as was the raft. He was floating inside the fuselage, which was bearing, bearing him toward the ocean floor, some 1,700 feet down. He could see nothing. His May West was uninflated, but its buoyancy was pulling him into the ceiling of the plane. The air was gone from his lungs, and he was now gulping reflexively, swallowing salt water. He tasted blood, gasoline, and oil. He was drowning. Louis flung out his arms, trying to, trying to find a way out. His right hand struck something, and his USC ring snagged on it. His hand was caught. He reached toward it with his left hand and felt a long, smooth link of, length of metal. The sensation oriented him. He was at the open right waist window. So he swam into the window, put his feet on the frame, and pushed off, wrenching his right hand free and cutting his finger. His back struck the top of the window, and the skin under his shirt scrapped off. He kicked clear, and the plane sank away. Louis fumbled for the cords on his May West, hoping that no one had po poached the carbon dioxide canisters, and luck was with him. The chambers ballooned. He was suddenly light. 
the vest pulling him urgently upward in a stream of debris. He burst into dazzling daylight. He gasped in a breath and immediately vomited up the salt water and fuel that he had swallowed. He had survived. <laughs> Can we just say, such good writing. Oh, man. So <laughs> I feel good. like I'm there. I was going to say, I almost didn't survive. Yeah. <laughs> I was just listening. <laughs> Golly. It, <laughs> this guy's been through so much already like more than almost i mean way more than i've ever been through my whole life just uh, golly man it, like at one point how many time how many things do you go through to where you get find yourself in that position you're like okay i'm, I'm done <laughs> i'm tired of fighting for my life like, oh man golly yeah wow i've mm. been uh in, in a swimming pool thinking <laughs> I'm not going to make it to the top. Like somebody yeah. was wrestling with me or something like that. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I can't make it to the top. So I'm going to, I'm, this is how I pass out and die or something like that. But, uh, I haven't actually passed out in the water, but how does that work? How did he pass <laughs> out in the water and come up knowing, okay, I'm, I'm alive, but he's trying to breathe, but it's just water. How do you live through that? man? <laughs> <laughs> Miracles. <Yeah>. That's how. <laughs> well, and so, Golly. Uh, coming back to God's sovereignty in this whole story, mm -hmm. when he wakes mm -hmm. up, the wires are no longer, like it says, inexplicably. Mm -hmm. There's a way to explain it, but right. inexplicably, uh, it, they're just gone, and the raft is gone. So everything that was entangling him, keeping him there, was gone. Mm -hmm. Insane number one. Insane number two. Uh, nobody had poached his carbon dioxide so he could actually <laughs> breathe. Uh, and so it says luck was with him. Mm. Uh, we know. Yeah. It's not that. <laughs> but, man, sorry. <laughs> this whole thing is insane. Uh-huh. Yeah, what a story. <sighs> man. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you just decompress for a yeah. little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's nice for anyone listening or watching. I think you just pause yeah. for a little bit. <laughs> but we're going through the darkness All for you. Through. Yeah. Uh, okay, they they have now wrecked. There's only three men that survived. Uh, Louis, Phil, and uh, there's another guy. I can't remember his name, but we'll get to it here in a minute. Um, and they have two life drafts with them. And now they're they're floating. They're adrift. Well, it came with, you know, some, uh, some things to eat, some things to drink, but n not anything to sustain them. So Louis came up with ground rules. Each man would eat one square of chocolate in the morning and one in the evening. Louis allotted one water tin per man, with each man allowed two or three sips a day. Eating and drinking at this rate, they could stretch their supplies for a few days. With inventory taken and rules established, there was nothing to do but wait. Louis was in pain. He knew his back had been badly scraped as he had escaped the wreckage, and he assumed this was the source of his pain. He had no idea that he was hurt much more seriously than that. When the plane had hit the water and he'd been thrown into the gun mount, all of his ribs had broken. Mm. Louis made a deliberate effort to avoid thinking about the men who had died and had put, had to push away the memory of the gurgling voice in the water. Considering the crash, he was amazed that three men had survived. All three had been on the plane's right side. The fact that the plane had struck on its left had probably saved them. What mystified Louis was his escape from the wreckage. 
If he had passed out from the pressure and the plane had continued to sink and the pressure to build, why had he woken again? We just asked that. (laughs) And how had he been loosed from the wires while unconscious? The men watched the sky. Louis kept his hand on Phil's head, stanching the bleeding. Phil has a giant gashing uh, head trauma, and so he's just holding it constantly. The last trace of the green hornet, the shimmer of gas, hydraulic fluid, and oil that had wreathed the raft since the crash faded away. In its place, rising from below, came dark blue shapes, gliding in lithe arcs. A neat, sharp form, flat and shining, cut the surface and began tracing circles around the rafts. Another one joined it. The sharks had found them. Fluttering close to their sides were pilot fish, striped black and white. The sharks, which Louis thought were of the mako and reef species, were so close that the men would only have to extend their hands to touch them. (laughs) The smallest were about six feet long. Some were double that size. They bent around the rafts, testing the fabric, dragging their fins along them, but not trying to get at the men on the top. They seemed to be waiting for the men to come to them. The sun sank, and it became sharply cold. The men used their hands to bail a few inches of water into each raft. Once their bodies warmed the water, they felt less chilled. Though exhausted, they fought the urge to sleep, afraid that a ship or a submarine would pass and they'd miss it. Phil's lower body under the water was warm enough, but his upper body was so cold that he shook. It was absolutely dark and absolutely silent, save for the chattering of Phil's teeth. The ocean was a flat calm. A rough, rasping tremor ran through the men. The sharks were rubbing their backs along the raft bottoms. <laughs> it's almost like a, it's almost like an SNL skit. Where it's just like things just get bad and then worse and then get worse and worse and worse. It's like there's the best of luck and the worst of luck all at the same time. Again, luck, yeah. but you know what I mean? Right, like, right. gosh, just when you're like, ah, I made it. Nope. <laughs> Sharks. <laughs> uh, have you heard of the game Worst Case Scenario? Uh, I've heard of it. I don't know that yes. I've played it. But. It's when you're worried about something, you come up with the worst case scenario. So mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. This, I, I said it all out loud. It's not the... I don't even think I could come up with some of this stuff. You're like, worst case scenario. I, yeah. I, Sharks now? You yeah. know, jeez, man. This is insane. Poor Louie. Yeah. Well, uh... Okay, one thing that we don't get into because it takes a while in the book is uh, Mac. Mac is the guy, the third man. Uh, that first night after Louis said, here's what, here's what we should do to ration out our chocolate. The chocolate is the only thing they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mac is going through a little bit of a crisis, eats all of the chocolate on that first night. Um, so insane to start with. So the castaways' bodies were declining. Other than Mac's feast on the chocolate bars, none of them had eaten since their early morning breakfast before their last flight. They were intensely thirsty and hungry. After the B-24 sighting, so they saw one fly up, they couldn't do anything about it. Mm. They spent another frigid night and then a long fourth day. There were no planes, no ships, no submarines. Each man drank the last drops of his water. Sometime on the fifth day, Max snapped. After having said almost nothing for days, he suddenly began screaming that they were going to die. Wild-eyed and raving, he couldn't stop shouting. Louis slapped him across the face. Mac abruptly went silent and lay down, appearing strangely contented. 
Maybe he was comforted by Louis's assertion of control, protected thereby from the awful possibilities that his imagination hung before him. Mac had good reason to lose faith. Their water was gone. After the B-24 had passed over, no more planes had come, and the current was carrying them far from the paths trafficked by friendly aircraft. If the search for them hadn't been called off, the men knew it soon would be. That night, before he tried to sleep, Louis prayed. He had prayed only once before in his life, in childhood, when his mother was sick and he'd been filled with a rushing fear that he would lose her. That night on the raft, in words composed in his head, never passing his lips, he pleaded for help. Mm. Okay, fifth day. Uh, he's already starting to snap. He's already. I would have snapped way sooner, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it is it is kind of interesting because you, you read throughout the Psalms and you, you see you know, the writers of the Psalms kind of say like, I came to my wits end. Mm-hmm. I, I had to come to my wits end. And then I cried out to you like that sort of language. Uh, and we see it here mm-hmm. and, and how God used this to, you know, to then put like, Oh, here you have no other hope. Truly. Right. Like <laughs> you can say that to some people are like, oh, okay, but here he has nothing. And so he pleads for help in prayer. Man, <laughs> Yeah, when yeah, in our weakness, he is strong, right? And like, we think we've experienced that weakness, <laughs> and then we read a story like this. Like, man, talk about to the very ends of your of your strength. Yeah. Oh man, golly! But I mean, hey, maybe that's what it took yeah. for Louis, you know, to go through thing after thing after <laughs> thing after thing. Some people they have a bad day. Oh, I need God. Right. Louis's like, no, 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 no. I need to almost die 55 times and then I'm going to cry out to God. I'm going to pray again. <laughs> he's oh, unbroken. Yeah. yeah. He's unbroken. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some people, I dropped my donut today. God, I need you today. Why yeah. well, you got to call me out, right. man? <laughs> <laughs> Not Louis. <clears throat> oh, man. Okay. As time passed, which is just an, another, just that right there is insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. As time passed, Phil began thinking about an article written by the World War I ace pilot Eddie Rickenbacker uh, that he had read in Life magazine that winter. The previous October, a B-17 carrying Rickenbacker and a crew over the Pacific had become lost and run out of fuel. The pilot had ditched the plane, and it had floated long enough for the men to get into rafts. The men had drifted for weeks, surviving on stores in the rafts, rainwater, fish, and bird meat, and one man had died, and the rest had hallucinated, babbling at invisible companions, singing bizarre songs, arguing about where to pull over the imaginary car in which they were riding, and one lieutenant had been visited by a specter who had tried to lure him to the bottom of the ocean. Finally, the rafts had split up, and one had reached an island. Natives had radioed to Funafuti, uh, Funafuti, excuse me, and the other men had been rescued. It seemed that Rickenbacker's crew had stretched the capacity for human survival as far as it would go. Rickenbacker had written that he had drifted for 21 days. He had actually drifted for 24. And Phil, Louis, and Mac believed that this was a survival record. In fact, the record for inflated rife survival, survival appears to have been set in 1942 when three Navy plane crash victims survived for 34 days on the Pacific before reaching an island where, where they were sheltered by natives. At first... Phil gave no thought to counting days, but when time stretched on, he began paying attention to how long they'd been out there. He had no trouble counting days without confusion because they were on the raft for only part of the day uh, Part of the day they crashed, 
Phil and Louie counted the following day as one. With each new day, Phil told himself that surely they'd be picked up before reaching Rickenbacker's mark. When he considered that uh, what they'd do if they passed that mark, he had no answer. Rickenbacker's story, familiar to Louie also, was important for another reason. Exposure, dehydration, stress, and hunger had quickly driven many of Rickenbacker's party insane, a common fate for raft-bound men. Louis was more concerned about sanity than he was about sustenance. He kept thinking of college of a college physiolo- <laughs> physiology class he had taken in which the instructor had taught them to think of the mind as a muscle that would atrophy if left idle. Louis was determined that no matter what happened to their bodies, their minds would stay under their control. Within a few days of the crash, Louis began peppering the other two with questions on every conceivable subject. Phil took up the challenge, and soon he and Louis turned the raft into a nonstop quiz show. They shared their histories from first memories onward, recounted in minute detail. Louis told of his days at USC. Phil spoke of Indiana. They recalled the best dates they'd ever had. They told and retold stories of practical jokes they'd played on each other. Every answer was followed by another question. Phil sang church hymns. Louis taught the other two the lyrics to White Christmas. They sang it over the ocean, a holiday song in June, heard only by circling sharks. <laughs> For Louis and Phil, the conversations were healing, pulling them out of their suffering and setting the future before them as a concrete thing. As they imagined themselves back in the world again, they willed a happy ending onto their ordeal and made it their expectation. With these talks, they created something to live for. So they were able to take uh, Rickenbacker. Is that right? Am I saying that right? I said I went back and forth. I said Rickenbacker and Rickenbacker. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so either one, so, either one. Yeah. But like, I mean, an example of of someone's someone's trials and tribulations and and sufferings. You know, a lot of times, you know, if we're kind of reflecting the gospel into this, you know, what 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 good is this for? What good is this thing I'm going through for? Well. If it, you know, obviously that was a, a bad situation for Rick and whoever and his crew uh, and the group that he was with. But if it hadn't been for that, who knows what would happen to Louie and his guys? Like, I mean, it, yes, Rickenbacker lost some of their people, but there might have been three more casualties. Hmm. But because of what they went through, Louie and his guys were able to realize, you know, learn from that and realize what they needed to do. And keep using that brain. But, yeah. man. Well, not only that, it's a great picture of. Like we talk about the importance of community, but he says uh, their conversations were healing. Mm -hmm. How often has that happened right here right. or, you know, it, just in any local church where mm -hmm. you're just a, hey, how are you doing? Like, you don't even have to go deeper than that, although you can and, and probably should in some reason, in some ways, but that's all you need sometimes. Mm -hmm. Just speaking with another brother is yeah. healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet again, so another little pocket of, of what God's doing, Phil singing hymns. You know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. you, know <laughs> uh, you know that Louis has to like, okay, I know some of these words now. Uh -huh. You know, like if he taught everybody White Christmas, you know that he learned some of those church hymns as well. No, for sure. So it's interesting to, to point out and remember. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. For Phil, there was another source of strength, one of which even Louis was unaware According to his family, in his quiet, private way, Phil was a deeply religious man, carrying a faith instilled in him by his parents. I had to, this is him, uh, his father speaking. 
I had told Al several times before to always do his best as he knew how to do it, and when things get beyond his skill and ability, to ask the Lord to step in and help out. Phil never spoke of his faith, but as he sang hymns over the ocean, conjuring up a protective God, perhaps rescue felt closer and despair more distant. Yeah, that's just what we talked about. Uh Yeah. Uh, Uh And it's, it's, like, obviously, I, I don't know the, the degree to which Laura is a Christian or mm-hmm. not. Uh, I didn't do any research on that necessarily. I don't think so. Um, but so, like, anyone who reads this is, and not a Christian, obviously we can say, yeah, when you should actually ask for the Lord's help before things get beyond. <laughs> everything is beyond your ability and skill. Um, but, uh, like, for that to be in the background, like, just... God's sovereignty in that, like mm. the man that he's going to be on this life dra- life raft with for however long, uh, grew up with, with some version of faith. We don't know, like it doesn't get into denomination or anything like that, but, yeah. uh, but as he sang out these hymns, it, it was God protecting them, mm. man. Yeah. And, and how important or, um, well, uh, what a good example uh, from Phil that we get of um, whatever we're going through as Christians uh, to rest in Christ and others are, and for others around us to see that, you know, because they, they had nothing to rest in. They had no assurance of anything hmm. else other than their own, and that's not enough, as we know. So the importance of us doing that and other people seeing that um, – Obviously, this is a, a part that plays into the the length of the story, I guess. But um, just a good reminder that that there's when when people see us believing what we believe, that can be an eternal effect, cause an eternal effect hmm. within them, even if even if not in that moment, you know, or however it plays out. Yeah. Okay, at this point, yes, two weeks had passed. The men's skin was burned, swollen, and cracked. Mysterious white lines striped their fingernails and toenails, and salt sores were marching up their legs, buttocks, and backs. The rafts were decomposing in the sun and salt water, bleeding vivid yellow dye onto the men's clothing and skin and making everything sticky. The men's bodies slowly wasted away. Each day, Louis noticed incremental differences in his weight and the weight of his raft mates from the day before. Uh, the pants looser, the faces narrower. As they passed the fortnight mark, they began to look grotesque. Their flesh had evaporated. Their cheeks, now bearded, had sunken into concavity. Uh, their bodies were digesting themselves. They were reaching a stage of their ordeal that for other castaways had been a gruesome turning point. In 1820, after the whaling ship Essex was sunk by an enraged whale, the lifeboat uh, bound survivors on the brink of death resorted to cannibalism. Some 60 years later, after 19 days adrift, starving survivors of the sunken yacht Mignonette killed and ate a teenaged crewman. Stories of cannibalism among castaways were so common that British sailors considered the practice of uh, choosing and sacrificing a victim to be an established custom of the sea. To well-fed men on land, the idea of cannibalism has always inspired revulsion. To many sailors who have stood on the threshold of death, Lost in the agony and mind-altering effects of starvation, it has seemed a reasonable, even 
inescapable solution. For Louis, the idea of consuming a human being was revolting and unthinkable. To eat a human being, even if the person had died naturally, would be abhorrent for him. All three men held the same conviction. Cannibalism wouldn't be considered then or ever. The two-week mark was a different kind of turning point for Louis. He began to pray aloud. He had no idea how to speak to God, so he recited snippets of prayers that he'd heard in movies. Phil bowed his head as Louis spoke, offering amen at the end. Mac only listened. The rafts slid on the current, their tethers snaking behind them. It seemed that they were still drifting west, but without any points of reference, the men weren't sure. At least they were going somewhere. <laughs> I, I think that that's a cool distinction. A, the two-week mark was always a turning point for the worst. And yet for Louis, uh, it's, it's, it was then that he began to pray out mm. loud. And such, Phil, so sweet, to bow his head with him and mm. then offering an amen at the end. Like, yeah. a, he's a sweet guy. Oh, man. Yeah, he probably had a much heavier role and and I mean obviously it's it's I was gonna say heavier role or, or bigger role than we realize. I think we realize how big it is, but you know, he's the he's the um supporting cast member in the story, but right. obviously what he's what he's bringing to the table here is is uh much more important than than I think maybe we might give him credit for, I guess. Right. But we everybody needs a fill. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like it. Well and I, I love that that's what God does. This is the mm-hmm. two-week mark of the most gruesome turning point. And God's like, well, no, he's yeah. going to start talking with me. And, mm. and it even says, like, at least they're going somewhere. It almost ends on a hopeful note there at the end. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going somewhere. Right. Well, it doesn't stay very hopeful for long. Uh, so there's um, a couple of planes that see them, like we mentioned this in the beginning, and uh, just strafe them with bullets machine guns come in uh and not only that they so many sharks have come to try and eat them that they start playing games so uh whoever can hit the most sharks that day with one of their oars wins for that day so so on and so forth uh but in subsequent days mac who's the third guy became a faint whisper of a man his water tins ran dry and when phil opened his tin and took a sip of the little he had left mac asked if he could drink from it for Phil, thirst had been the cruelest trial, and he knew that the water left in his tin, essential to his own survival, couldn't save Mac. He gently told Mac that he didn't have enough left to share. Louis was sympathetic to Phil, but he couldn't bring himself to refuse Mac. He gave, himself, he gave him a small sip of his own water. That evening, Phil heard a small voice. It was Mac asking Louis if he was going to die. Louis looked over at Mac, who was watching him, Louis thought it would be disrespectful to lie to Mac, who might have something that he needed to say or do before life left him. Louis told him that he thought he'd die that night. Mac Mac had no reaction. Phil and Louis lay down, put their arms around Mac, and went to sleep. Sometime that night, Louis was lifted from sleep by a breathy sound, a deep outrushing of air, slow and final. He knew what it was. Sergeant Francis McNamara had begun his last journey with a panicked art, consuming the raft's precious food stores, and in doing so he had placed himself and his raftmates in the deepest jeopardy. But in the last days of his life, 
In the struggle against the deflating raft and the jumping sharks, he had given all he had left. It wasn't enough to save him. It probably hastened his death, but it may have made the difference between life and death for Phil and Louis. Had Mac not survived the crash, Louis and Phil might have well been dead by that 33rd day. In his dying days, Mac had redeemed himself. In the morning, Phil wrapped Mac's body in something, probably part of the ruined raft. They knelt over the body and said aloud all of the good things they knew of Mac, laughing a little at his penchant for mess hall pie. Louis wanted to give him a religious eulogy, but didn't know how, so he recited disjointed passages that he remembered from movies, ending with a few words about committing the body to the sea. And he prayed for himself and Phil, vowing that if God would save them, he would serve heaven forever. When he was done, Louis lifted the shrouded body in his arms. It felt as if it weighed no more than 40 pounds. Louis bent over the side of the raft and gently slid Mac into the water, and Mac sank away. The sharks let him be. The next night, Louis and Phil completed their 34th day on the raft. Though they didn't know it, they had passed what was almost certainly the record for survival adrift in an inflated raft. If anyone had survived longer, they hadn't lived to tell about it. Man. Mm. That had to be really, really tough. You know, I mean, just the three of you, all you've gone through, and then a month and a raft, and then for one, I mean, like, you, how deflating would that be? You know, like, well, there's one, like, who's who's next, essentially? Whew, man. But uh, it, it seems like they still have this sense of hope about them, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> How do you stay unbroken after that? I do not. I do not yeah. know. <laughs> Bro- I'm broken. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. Just reading this. Yeah, man. And one thing that I this doesn't mention that I didn't uh, write down or anything to talk about, but uh, in doing some of the research on the book, uh, Laura talks about how Louis didn't necessarily want to share that Mac ate all of the chocolates at first. You know, like that first night. Uh, because he thought it painted him in a bad light, which is already such a sweet thing to to mm-hmm. think about. But then uh, she convinced him, like, no, that's that's part of his redemption. Because uh, one thing I didn't mention is that Mac, uh, like the last few days before he did die, came alive and started knocking sharks like left and right, saving them, you know, in, in key moments and, and times. And so uh, when it says that they might not be alive if Mac hadn't lived that long, like, absolutely that mm-hmm. that was true in so many different ways there toward mm-hmm. the end and so he yes ate all of their chocolates and and but saved them too like mm-hmm. redeemed his his whole story and so yeah. i i thought that was a really cool backstory to that yeah that's cool mm-hmm. okay <laughs> uh i'm not like we don't have a, a running tally of how many days this has been but <laughs> Louis had predicted that they'd find land on the 47th day. Phil had chosen the day before. Because they had spotted land on the day Phil had chosen and were about to reach it on the day Louis had chosen, they decided that they had both been right. So they're about to reach land on the 47th day. 47th-ish day. (laughs) They could see more islands now. Louis spotted a tiny island to their left and pointed it out to Phil, describing it as having one tree on it. Then a strange thing happened. The lone tree became two trees. After a moment's confusion, the men suddenly understood. It wasn't an island, and those weren't trees. It was a boat. 
It had been perpendicular to them, leaving only one mast visible, and then it had turned, bringing the rearward mast into view. Louis and Phil ducked. They rowed as fast as they could, trying to get to shore before the sailor spotted them. They were too late. The boat made a sharp turn and sped toward them. The weakened men couldn't row fast enough to escape. They gave up and stopped. The boat drew alongside the raft, and Louis and Phil looked up. Above them was a machine gun mounted on the boat's bow. Along the deck stood a line of men, all Japanese. Each one held a weapon pointed at the castaways. <laughs> the next part of the skit, just, just as bad as the, what was the game? The worst case scenario, yes. like every time. Yeah. <laughs> His life wins that game. Yeah. Like he wins that game. Yeah. 47 days drifting out in the water knowing okay we're not going to reach land or you know like anything you you haven't reached it in 47 days i don't even remember what happened to me 47 days ago <laughs> but you have all of this and then you finally see land and then that happens how demoralizing uh, man yeah it goes from what could be the best thing to literally the worst thing yes. it, it could have been somebody else it couldn't have been you know a a smaller piece of, I don't know, whatever, but it was like, nope, it's not even just, you're not disappointed. It's literally worst case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, every, what seems like could be hope is just cut out. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, no, that's not it actually. <laughs> Man. <clears throat> okay. Uh, we skipped ahead. Obviously we are now on uh Kwajalein execution Island. Uh, they're both blindfolded in two by six by seven kind of cages uh so harsh treatment just already starting rats are eating at their infected skin the morning of the second day began phil and louis lay in sweltering silence thinking that at any moment they'd be dragged out and beheaded the guards stalked back and forth snarling at the captives and drawing the sides of their hands across their necks with sadistic smiles for louis the the digestive miseries continued his diarrhea became explosive and cramps doubled him over. He lay under a blanket of flies and mosquitoes, keeping his buttocks over the waist hole for as long as he could until the guard snapped at him to move his face back to the hole. The day passed. Three times, a single wad of rice, a little bigger than a golf ball, sailed through the door window and broke against the floor. Once or twice, a swallow of tea in a cup was left on the sill and Louis sucked it down and night came. Another day came and went, then another. The heat was smothering. Lice hopped over the captive's skin. Mosquitoes preyed on them and swarmed so thick that when Louis snapped his fingers into a fist and then opened his hand, his entire palm was crimson. His diarrhea worsened, becoming bloody. Each day, Louis cried out for a doctor. One day, a doctor came. He leaned into the cell, looked at Louis, chuckled, and walked away. Curled up on the gravelly floor, both men felt as if their bones were wearing through their skin. Louis begged for a blanket to sit on, but was ignored. He passed the time trying to strengthen his legs, pulling himself upright and standing for a minute or two while holding the wall, then sinking down. He missed the raft. Two sips of water a day weren't nearly enough to replace Louis' torrential fluid loss. His thirst became worse than anything he'd known on the raft. He crawled to the door and pleaded for water. The guard left, then returned with a cup. Louis, grateful, drew close to the door to take a drink. The guard threw scalding water in his face. Louis was so dehydrated that he couldn't help but keep begging. 
At least four more times, the response was the same, leaving Louis's face speckled with blisters. Louis knew that dehydration might kill him, and part of him hoped that it would. One day, as he lay in misery, Louis heard singing. The voices he had heard over the raft had come to him again. He looked around his cell, but the singers weren't there. Only their music was with him. He let it wash over him, finding in it a reason to hope. Eventually, the song faded away, but silently, in his mind, Louis sang it over and over to himself. He prayed intensely, ardently, hour after hour. Down the hall, Phil languished. Rats were everywhere, climbing up his waste bucket and wallowing in his urine pail, waking him at night by skittering over his face. Periodically, he was prodded outside, halted before a pan of water, and ordered to wash his face and hands. Phil dropped his face into the pan and slurped up the water. Louis couldn't speak to Phil, nor Phil to him, but occasionally, one of them would cough or scuff the floor to let the other know that he was there. Once, the guards left the cells unattended, and for the first time, Phil and Louis were alone. Louis heard Phil's voice. What's going to happen? Louis had no answer. There was a beating of boots in the hall, and the Americans fell silent. <sighs> When you think it can't get worse, you know? Right. My goodness. He missed the raft. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> missed the worst thing that he's ever experienced in his life up to that point. Can you imagine? To go back. My goodness, man. Man. Mm, 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 mm. And then to mm. know, okay, this dehydration might kill me. I hope it does. Right. <laughs> My goodness, man. And, and so mm. here's where a part of that uh, little backstory of, the worst thing that people feared was being captured. Uh, so we're starting to see a little bit of, of why. And like, for anyone who's reading, it gets into it, but, and, and who's thinking like, is this legal? Absolutely not. Prisoner of wars have the Geneva mm -hmm. Convention. They have different things that should have protected them. Uh, but when, you know, like Red Cross, different people would come by, they put up this front that show like, oh yeah, we're treating them really well. They're getting this kind of food, so on and so forth. And, uh, but behind the scenes, they were saying, if you say anything, we will kill you. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't do anything. And so you've got this mix of that happening. And then these secret POW camps where uh, Red Cross, nobody knows anything about them. And so they're, the torture at those was, you can't even fathom it really. Yeah. Um, mm. But to, to think again about that music. And, mm -hmm. and him singing, most likely Phil singing those hymns, right. sweeping back over him. And, and then that's when he starts to pray again and yeah. again, ardently, after hour, hour after hour. Man. <clears throat> so at every, it seems like at every horrible moment, God is there. Mm -hmm. and it's a, yeah. Man. Yeah. Okay. The crash of Green Hornet had left Louis and Phil in the most desperate physical extremity without food, water, or shelter, but on Kwajalein, again, Execution Island, the guards sought to deprive them of something they had that had sustained them even as all else had been lost, dignity. This self-respect and sense of self-worth, the innermost armament of the soul, lies at the heart of humanness. To be deprived of it is to be dehumanized, to be cleaved from and cast below mankind. Men subjected to dehuman dehumanization treatment experience profound wretchedness and loneliness and find that hope is almost impossible to retain. Without dignity, identity is erased. In its absence, men are defined not by themselves but by their captors and the circumstances in which they are forced to live. 
One American airman shot down and relentlessly debased by his Japanese captors described the state of mind that his captivity created. I was literally becoming a lesser human being. Few societies treasured dignity and feared humiliation, as did the Japanese, for whom a loss of honor could merit suicide. This is likely one of the reasons why Japanese soldiers in World War II debased their prisoners with such zeal, seeking to take from them that which was most painful, uh, take from them that which was most painful and destructive to lose. On Kwajalein, Louis and Phil learned a dark truth known to the doomed in Hitler's death camps. The slaves of the American South and a hundred other generations of betrayed people. Dignity is as essential to human life as water, food, and oxygen. The stubborn retention of it, even in the face of extreme physical hardship, can hold a man's soul in his body long past the point at which the body should have surrendered it. The loss of it can carry a man off as surely as thirst, hunger, exposure, and asphyxiation, and with greater cruelty. In places like Kwajalein, Degradation could be as lethal as a bullet. I don't, <clears throat> I don't like that place. <laughs> Man, golly! I, I mean, what do you, what do you even say? I don't even. It's just unimaginable. I mean, this is like somebody could write this as a fiction book, and you'd be like, "This is a little far fetched." Come on, guys, like get real. But this is, the, oh man, oof. Yeah. Golly, the things that, that God can bring someone through is just insane. Yeah. Man. Well, And to know, too, that... So she just mentioned all of that. Uh, that was their key tactic, was to just take everything away from them that, that could keep them alive. Food, water, but also mm. humility and, and dignity. Uh, humanity and dignity. Um, and yet, it didn't happen. He's still unbroken mm-hmm. up to this point. <laughs> Uh, like this this feels like top tier humanity to me this Mm. feels like god gave him a special kind of (laughs) mind and soul to be able to endure some of this yeah and i know that like for this story there are countless others of of men who made it through uh horrible things like this but Mm -hmm. uh like that has to be from god there's no other way to just yeah (laughs) you can't be that strong no truly yeah i don't think no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, this is like a biblical story, you know. It's like, oh, Daniel in the lion's den, and I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like you see what God can can because it's only God making helping him get through this. Yeah. Like, there's no way. There's like, so there's, there's no way. This is just any human can do this on their own. No, not a absolutely chance. Not. But can you imagine the the like if dignity is tr- is what they're trying to take from you? At this point, I don't think I have much yeah, left. Yeah, what do you, what's, yeah, what's left to take, man? Yeah. Oof. Goes on. <clears throat> Louis was sitting in his cell when a new guard appeared at the door. Louis looked up, saw a face he didn't recognize, and felt an upswell of dread, knowing that a new guard would likely assert his authority. You Christian? The guard asked. Louis, whose parents had tried to raise him Catholic, hadn't gone near church since one Sunday in his boyhood when a priest had punished him for tardiness by grabbing him by the ear and dragging him out. But though Louis emerged with a sore ear, a little religion had stuck with him. He said yes. The guard smiled. Me Christian. The guard gave his name, which Louis would later recall with some uncertainty as Kawamura. 
He began babbling in English so poor that all Louis could pick out was something about Canadian missionaries and conversion. The guard slipped two pieces of hard candy into Louis's hand, then moved down the hall and gave two pieces to Phil. A friendship was born. Kawamura brought a pencil and paper and began making drawings to illustrate things he wished to talk about. Walking back and forth between the cells, he'd draw a picture of something, a car, a plane, an ice cream cone, and say and write its Japanese name. Louis and Phil would then write uh, and say the English name. The prisoners understood almost nothing of what Kawamura said, but his goodwill needed no translation. Kawamura could do nothing to improve the physical conditions in which the captives lived, but his kindness was life-saving. When Kawamura was off guard duty, a new guard came. He launched himself at Louis, ramming a stick through the door window and into Louis's face, as if trying to put out his eyes. The next day, Kawamura saw Louis's bloody face and asked who had done it. Upon hearing the guard's name, Kawamura hardened, lifting his arm and flexing his biceps at Louis. When his shift was up, he sped away with an expression of furious determination. For two days, Louis saw nothing of Kawamura or the vicious guard. Then, Kawamura returned, opened Louis's cell door a crack, and proudly pointed out the guard who had beaten Louis. His forehead and mouth were heavily bandaged. He never guarded the cell again. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, the, the relief, like all that they've gone through, all that Louis has, has dealt with and, and been just through the ringer up until this point, and then, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, that just gives me chills. Like, I, I can just, I can't imagine, but I try to imagine being in Louis' shoes. And in that moment, like, a little bit of hope, you know? It was just, yeah. oh, my goodness, the first good thing that's happened in however long at this point. Golly. Yeah. Oh, man, that had to have been just a, I mean, as weak and frail as he had been in that moment, he had to have, have just a sense of just energy in him at that point. Just, oh, man, what you know, or first, I would have been like, is this a joke? Like, are you just, are you just, you know, uh, trying yeah. to get me to say something so you can beat me up some more or something? But yeah. man, to realize that, oh man, that had to have been such a sigh of relief. <laughs> I mean, just reading it, it's like yeah. a moment to decompress. Like, oh man, somebody's taken up for him. Right. Somebody gave him a piece of candy, you know, like, jeez. Oh. Yeah, I, I wonder, like in the story, if he's ever able to go back and, and find... Kawamura and, mm-hmm. and talk about the Canadian missionaries, like how that, but right. I mean, right there just shows God was so sovereign. Mm-hmm. Do, is there, can you say that? So <laughs> sovereign. He was sovereign to put missionaries from Canada in Japan at some mm-hmm. point, I, I, at least I'm assuming, yeah. uh, and some somehow converted this guy so that <laughs> here in this story... <laughs> Louis could have just a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Somebody who took up for him and, and, and seems like he hurt the other guy. Uh, I mean, just a... Yeah. Golly, man. <laughs> just a, And so the one line that he says, uh, his kindness was life-saving. Mm. That, is that not God? Right. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. man. Jeez. Mm. So there are, obviously, the book is mostly dark, but there's these pockets mm. of... Huh, yeah. this is this is nice. Uh, it doesn't stay nice. <laughs> so, 63 days later, he's still a prisoner of war, and it goes into kind of all of those days, what, what it's like. But um, he's now at a new prisoner of war camp called Ofuna. Each day began at 6. 
a bell clanging, a shouting guard, captives running outside to Tinko. Louis would fall into a line of haggard men. Guards stalked them, clubs or baseball bats in their hands, and rifles with fixed bayonets over their shoulders, making menacing postures and yelling unintelligibly. The captives were hounded through a frenzied routine, counting off, bowing toward Emperor Hirohito, rushing to the washstand and Benjo, then rushing back to the assembly area five minutes later. Then it was back to the barracks where guards rifled through the men's things in search of contraband, misfolded blankets, misaligned buttons, anything to justify a beating. Breakfast came from captives who handed out bowls of watery, fetid slop, which each man ate alone in his cell. Then men were paired off, given clots of wet rope, and forced to bend double, put the rope on the floor, and wash the 150-foot-long barracks aisle floor at a run, or sometimes waddling duck style, while the guards trotted behind them, swatting them. Then it was back outside, where the guards made the men run circles or perform calisthenics, often until they collapsed. When the exercise was over, the men had to sit outside, regardless of the weather. The only breaks in the silence were the screams coming from the interrogation room. Punctuating the passage of each day were beatings. Men were beaten for folding their arms, for sitting naked to help heal sores, for cleansing their teeth, for talking in their sleep. Most often... They were beaten for not understanding orders, which were almost always issued in Japanese. Dozens of men were lined up and clubbed in the knees for one man's alleged infraction. A favorite punishment was to force men to stand sometimes for hours in the Ofuna crouch, a painful and strenuous position in which, when, in which men stood with knees bent halfway and arms overhead. Those who fell over or dropped their arms were clubbed and kicked. Captives who tried to assist victims were attacked themselves, usually far more violently, so victims were on their own. Any attempt to protect oneself, ducking, shielding the face, provoked greater violence. My job, remembered Captive Glenn McConnell, was to keep my nose on my face and keep from being disassembled. The beatings, he wrote, were of such intensity that many of us wondered if we'd ever live to see the end of the war. At night, in the cell again, Louis awaited dinner, eaten alone in the dark. Then he just sat there. He wasn't permitted to speak, whistle, sing, tap, read, or look out his window. There was another inspection outside, another haranguing, and then the uneasy pause of night, the pacing of the guards, before the dawn again brought shouting and running and the thud of clubs. So a little bit of a break, but then back to bit. it. Yeah. Man. <laughs> just... Like it's, it's almost, I don't want to say comical, but I mean, it, like it's, it, it's so unrealistic, but the fact that he still, I mean, obviously remains unbroken to use the title, I guess. I mean, it's, uh, pff, golly, man, I don't even, <laughs> and I like, well, I mean, I don't know, like I, he was talking about the, what they call the Ofuna stance or whatever, like, I assume Louis had to do that a few times, like, I wonder if. Like, obviously, he didn't have a whole lot of strength at this point, but maybe all that he had gone through and the weight that he had lost, maybe some that was a little bit of the sovereignty of helping to be able to do some things like that. Maybe, you know, I mean, yeah. maybe the, I bet there's a lot of little woven in intricacies of God's sovereignty that we don't even see or think about. It's like, yeah. there's a reason something happened for this or something, I bet. Hmm. That's just a guess, but still. Yeah. <laughs> well. So a little bit more of uh, just kind of the life of life at Ofuna. At Ofuna, 
Captives weren't just beaten, they were starved. The thrice daily meals usually consisted of a bowl of broth with a bit of vegetable and a bowl or half bowl of rancid rice, sometimes mixed with barley. It contained virtually no protein and was grossly lacking in nutritive value and calories. It was camp policy to give diminished and or spoiled rations to captives suspected of withholding information, and at times, the entire camp's rations were cut to punish one captive's reticence. The food was infested with rat droppings, maggots, and so much sand and grit that Louis's teeth were soon pitted, chipped, and cracked. The men nicknamed the rations all Dumpo. The extremely low caloric intake and befouled food coupled with the exertion of the forced exercise put the men's lives in great danger. We were dying, wrote Captain John Balk, of, of, on about 500 calories a day. Scurvy was common. Foodborne parasites and pathogens made diarrhea almost ubiquitous. Most feared was beriberi, a potentially deadly disease caused by a lack of thiamine. There were two forms of beriberi, and they could concur... <laughs> They could, occur, they could occur concurrently. Wet beriberi affected the heart and the circulatory system, causing marked edema, swelling of the extremities. If untreated, it was often fatal. Dry beriberi affected the nervous system, causing numbness, confusion, unsteady gait, and paralysis. When wet beriberi victims pressed on their swollen limbs, deep indentations would remain long after the pressure was removed, giving the men in the giving the men the unnerving impression that their bones were softening. In some cases, wet beriberi caused extreme swelling of the scrotum. Some men's testicles swelled to the size of bread loaves. <laughs> this is so dark. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine some of this, man. Mm -mm. No, this is like, <laughs> it's, it's a horror movie. You yes. know, this is just like, this is... Again, worst case scenario on steroids. Like, wh what's worse than what you can imagine? Like, uh, oh, Barry Barry. Like, who would have? I mean, golly, man. Yeah. And that you can have wet and dry Barry Barry at the same time? Ugh, yeah. Uh uh. Can you imagine pressing your skin and thinking, my bones have gone soft? Yeah. I, like that. <laughs> golly. Aye, aye, aye. Mm -mm. Okay. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> so, um, kind of a, a, if you've seen the movie, kind of a big thing in the movie is when, uh, Louis meets kind of the, the worst guard or, you know, uh, person who just beats him continually and his name's Watanabe, but they nickname him the bird. Well, so, uh, this is now September of 1944 at a new POW camp called Omori. Uh, just, he's a, a monstrous war criminal, this man, already up to this point. Watanabe beat POWs every day, fracturing their windpipes, rupturing their eardrums, shattering their teeth, tearing one man's ear half off, leaving men unconscious. He made one officer sit in a shack wearing only a fundoshi undergarment for four days in winter. He tied a 65-year-old POW to a tree and left him there for days. He ordered one man to report to him to be punched in the face every night for three weeks. He practiced judo on an appendectomy patient. When gripped in the ecstasy of an assault, he wailed and howled, drooling and frothing, sometimes sobbing, tears running down his cheeks. Men came to know when an outburst was imminent. Watanabe's right eyelid would sag a moment before he snapped. Very quickly, 
Watanabe gained a fearsome reputation throughout Japan. Officials at other camps began sending troublesome prisoners to Watanabe for polishing, and Omori was dubbed Punishment Camp. In the words of Commander Mar, who had been transferred from Ofuna to become the ranking Omori POW, Watanabe was the most vicious guard in any prison camp on the main island of Japan. Two things separated Watanabe from the other notorious war criminals. One was the emphasis that he placed on emotional torture. Even by the standards of his honor-conscious culture, he was unusually consumed by his perceived humiliation and was intent upon inflicting the same pain on the men under his power. Where men like the Quack, just another guard that they nicknamed, uh, were simply goons, Watanabe combined beatings with acts meant to batter men's psyches. He forced men to bow at pumpkins or trees for uh, hours. He ordered a clergyman POW to stand all night saluting a flagpole, shouting the Japanese word for salute, kiri, kiri, uh, kairi. The experience left the man weeping and out of his mind. He confiscated and destroyed POW's family photographs and brought men to his office to show them letters from home, then burned the unopened letters in front of them. To ensure that the men felt utterly helpless, he changed the manner in which he demanded to be addressed each day, beating anyone who guessed wrong. He ordered men to violate camp policies, then attacked them for breaking the rules. POW Jack Brady summed him up in one sentence, He was absolutely the most sadistic man I ever met. The other attribute that separated Watanabe from fellow guards was his inconsistency. Most of the time, he was the wrathful god of Omori, but... After beatings, he sometimes returned to apologize, often in tears. These fits of contrition usually lasted only moments before the shrieking and punching began again, and he would spin from serenity to writhing madness in the blink of an eye, usually for no reason. One POW recalled seeing him gently praise a POW, fly into a rage, and beat the POW unconscious, then amble to his office and eat his lunch with the placidity of a grazing cow. When Watanabe wasn't thrashing POWs, he was forcing them to be his buddies. He'd wake a POW in the night and be nice as pie, asking the man to join him in his room, where he'd serve cookies and talk about literature. Sometimes he'd round up anyone in the camp who could play an instrument or sing, bring them to his room and host a concert. He expected the men to respond as if they adored him, and at times he seemed to honestly believe that they did. Maybe he held these gatherings because they left the POWs feeling more stressed than if he were consistently hostile, or maybe he was just lonely. Among the Japanese at Omori, Watanabe was despised for his haughtiness, his boasts about his wealth, and his curtness. He made a great show of his education, droning on about nihilism and giving pompous lectures on French literature at NCO meetings. None of his colleagues listened. It wasn't the subject matter, it was simply that they loathed him. Perhaps this is why he turned to POWs for friendship. The tea parties, wrote Derek Clark, were tense sitting on the edge of a volcano affairs. Any misstep, any misunderstood word might set Watanabe off, leaving him smashing teapots, upending tables, and pounding his guests into oblivion. After the POWs left, Watanabe seemed to feel humiliated by having had to force friendship from lowly POWs. The next day, he would often deliver a wild-eyed whipping to the previous night's buddies. Like any bully... He had a taste for a particular type of victim. Enlisted men usually received only the occasional slapped face. Officers were in for unrelenting cruelty. Among those officers, a few were especially irresistible to him. Some had elevated status, 
such as physicians, chaplains, barracks commanders, and those who had been highly successful in civilian life. Others he resented because they wouldn't crawl before him. These he singled out and hunted with inexhaustible hatred. From the moment that Watanabe locked eyes with Louis Zamperini, an officer, a famous Olympian, and a man for whom defiance was second nature, no man obsessed him more. I wonder if that was like, if he was just being like tactical with his his bipolar approach. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. And I don't, I don't know if it's ever answered in, in the story at all. <clears throat> but like you wonder, like maybe, like I said, was he just lonely? And he was just forcing himself to be this machine of a monster. And then he would kind of break down every now and then and be who he really wanted to be. Or was he so good at being that machine monster that he was, you know, let me just drive these guys into the ground and then let me, you know, draw them back in a little bit, think maybe there's some hope with me, and then no, I'm going to draw you back in the ground. Like, I wonder if that was his approach. That's what it seems like. But either way, how exhausting. <laughs> 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 it, yeah. You don't have any words for it, really. Mm, no. But to... Mm. Like, so now some of that backstory of, of Louis, like his Olympian status, like mm-hmm. he's kind of a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Watanabe's got him. He's like, now, like I, he already had a type that he liked to beat more. Mm-hmm. And this is like the archetype. Like this is his, this is his, yeah. his guy. And we see that. Uh, mm. The corporal, this is... Uh, Watanabe, who they nicknamed the bird. So he'll, he'll be referred to kind of both throughout the rest of the book. But uh, the corporal rushed down to the down the barracks and halted before Louis. He wore the webbed belt that Louis had seen on him the first day in Inomori. The buckle was several inches square, made of heavy brass. Standing before Louis, the bird jerked the belt off his waist and grasped one end with both hands. You come to attention at last. The bird swung the belt backward with the buckle on the loose end, and then whipped it around himself and forward as if he were performing a hammer throw. The buckle rammed into Louis's left temple and ear. Louis felt as if he'd been shot in the head. Though he had been resolved to never let the bird knock him down, the power of the blow and the explosive pain that followed overawed everything in him. His legs seemed to liquefy, and he went down. The room spun. Louis lay on the floor dazed, his head throbbing, blood running from his temple. When he gathered his wits, the bird was crouching over him, making a sympathetic, almost maternal sound, a sort of awe. He pulled a fold of toilet paper from his pocket and pressed it gently gently into Louis's hand. Louis held the paper to his temple. Oh, it's stop, eh? The bird said, his voice soft. Louis pulled himself upright. The bird waited for him to steady himself. The soothing voice and the offer of the paper for his wound were revelations to Louis. There was compassion in this man. The sense of relief was just entering his mind when the buckle, whirling around from the bird's swinging arms, struck his head again exactly where it it had hit before. Louis felt pain bursting through his skull, his body going liquid again. He smacked into the floor. For several weeks, Louis was deaf in his left ear. The bird continued to beat him every day. As his attacker struck him, Louis bore it with clenched clenched fists and eyes blazing, but the assaults were wearing him down. The corporal began lording over his dream life, coming at him and pounding him, his features alight in vicious rapture. 
Louis spent hour after hour in prayer, begging for God to save him. He lost himself in fantasies of running through an Olympic stadium, climbing onto a podium, and he thought of home, tormented by thoughts of what his disappearance must have done to his mother. He longed to write her, but there was no point. Once, a Japanese officer had announced that men could write home, and everyone in the camp pinned letters to their parents, wives, children, and steady girls. But when the bird learned of it, he called in Commander Maurer, handed him the letters, and forced him to burn them. The only thing I can even come close to in this, uh, which is nowhere near it, is when I was a waiter, I would have dreams of, uh, you know, like, it's super busy, I'm way behind, I didn't get waters for this table, you know, like, all of that, all the, like, worst things going wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I would wake up, like, panicked, sweating, like, oh, man, I'm, oh, I'm actually not behind, I'm just sleeping, you know, like, but I would wake up thinking, oh, I missed everything that I was supposed to do. Uh, Or when I know that like the next day I'm preaching or something like that, uh, I wake up in a panic thinking, I didn't write it. I didn't, uh, I didn't study it. I don't even know what the passage is, you know, like that sort of, and I'm standing there before all these people. Uh, Like those kinds of the things are like the worst dreams I ever have. So how, how much more so then, this man who beats you every single day of your life now mm-hmm. would haunt your dreams, man. Yeah. Golly. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You can't. Imagine, you can't fathom it. I mean, we can't. There's no way we can sit here and be like, "Oh yeah, I yeah, I can only I can imagine how that would be." Like, we don't, there's I don't even I don't want to for one, right. but for two, golly, I mean, how can you? And like like you're saying, those dreams are they're worse than like real life. So if you're experiencing this in real life, can't imagine the, how bad the dreams are. Yeah. You wake up in a sweat and you're like, oh, it was just a dream. And then you realize, oh, here, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Mm-mm. And how heartbreaking, too, to, to, mm. for him to realize, oh, there's compassion in this mm-hmm. man. Yeah. He's given me toilet paper to put on my head and he's, and he's acting mm-hmm. like he cares. Like, ah. Oh. And then you get hit again in the exact same spot. Mm. My goodness, Phew. man. <laughs> okay maybe we should have taken some pauses in here to <laughs> just decompress a little bit okay uh at this point months have gone by he's got extreme nightmares uh there's no hope hundreds of pages that we just kind of skipped through of torture I, I mean it's it gets redundant it gets to the point where as you're reading it you're like oh okay he was beat again he was beat again then this way again and so on and so forth like it gets you almost get numb to it with how much it happened to him. So on the last day of February, Louis and the other officers were called into the compound. Fifteen names were called, among them Zamperini, Wade, Tinker, Mead, and Fitzgerald. They were told that they were being transferred to a camp called 4B, also known as Neotsu. Louis greeted the news with bright spirits. Wherever he was going, he would be joined by almost all of his friends. On the evening of March 1st, The chosen men gathered their belongings and donned overcoats that had been distributed the day before. Louis said goodbye to Harris. He would never see him again, just one of his friends that he made. The Naotsu-bound men climbed aboard a truck which bore them into Tokyo. Watching the air battle over the city had been exhilarating, but when the men saw the consequences, they were shocked. Whole Whole neighborhoods had been reduced to charred ruins. Row after row of homes, now nothing but black bones. In the rubble, 
Louis noticed something shining. Standing in the remains of many houses were large industrial machines. What Louis was seeing was a small fragment of a giant cottage industry. War production farmed out to innum innumerable private homes, schools, and small shadow factories. Louis and the other transferring POWs were driven to the railway station and put on a train. They rode all night, moving west into a snowy landscape. As they rode on, the snow became deeper and deeper. At about 9 a.m. on March 2nd, the train drew up to Noa to Noa, sorry, Neotsu, a seaside village on the west coast of Japan. Led to the front of the station, the POWs stared in amazement. The snow rose up some 14 feet overhead. Climbing up a stairway cut into the drifts, they found themselves into a, in a blindingly white world, standing atop a snow mountain that buried the entire village. It was as if a giant frosted cake were sitting in the town. The snow was so deep that residents had dug vertical tunnels to get in and out of their homes. The contrast to fire black in Tokyo was jarring. Pulling their baggage along on sleighs, the POWs began a mile and a quarter walk to camp. It was windy and bitterly cold. Fitzgerald, who had a badly infected foot, had the most difficulty. His crutches poked deep in the snow and wouldn't hold his weight. The prisoners crossed a bridge and saw the Sea of Japan. Just short of it, cornered against the Era and Hakura rivers, was the Neotsu POW camp, almost entirely obscured by snow. Louis and the others trudged into the compound and stopped before a shack, where they were told to stand at attention. They waited for some time, the wind frisking their clothes. At last, a door thumped open. A man rushed out and snapped to a halt, screaming, Kyrie. It was the bird. Louis's legs folded. The snow reared up at him, and down he went. <laughs> yeah, so one thing that we didn't get to is uh, the bird was transferred, for whatever reason, to a different POW camp, and, you know, Louis's life is, uh, yeah, it's a, a again, yeah, another mm -hmm. relief. Uh, mm -hmm. But then he gets transferred. <laughs> Couldn't you? <laughs> just... He went down, and I'm like, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. I also went <laughs> Man, can you imagine? The defeat. Oh, man. No. How are you unbroken, man? <laughs> this is insane. But, like, you see the little glimpses of, like, when they talked about, you know, being transferred. He's like, oh, well, at least I get to go with my friends. Like, you see these little glimpses of just just enough hope to hang on to something. Yeah. You know, look for the one good thing that could happen amongst these five billion horrible things that are happening to yeah. you. Ugh. Well, and it also seems so silly for me to ever complain about anything. <laughs> you know, knowing... Yeah. Like, if if truly hope for them was found in such small things, mm -hmm. uh, how much hope is out there that I'm missing because I'm complaining about the one thing that went wrong. You right. know, like... Goodness right. gracious. Yeah, I'm very humbled in reading this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. They're in this new place surrounded by snow. Terrified of retribution, Louis tried to hide from the bird, but his dysentery was becoming very serious. Risking being seen by the bird, he went to the camp doctor to plead for medication. The bird ran him down, demanding to know if he had received permission to approach the doctor. Louis said no. The bird marched Louis away from the doctor's shack, passing Tinker and Wade, who'd been ordered to work outside. Out in the compound, the bird halted. Lying on the ground before them was a thick, heavy wooden beam, some six feet long. Pick it up, the bird said. 
With some effort, Louis hoisted it up and the bird ordered him to lift it high and hold it directly over his head. Louis heaved the beam up. The bird called the guard over. If the prisoner lowers his arms, the bird told him, hit him with your gun. The bird walked to a nearby shack, climbed on the roof, and settled in to watch. Louis stood in the sun, holding up the beam. The bird stretched over the roof like a contented cat, calling to the Japanese who walked by, pointing to Louis and laughing. Louis locked his eyes on the bird's face, radiating hatred. Several minutes passed. Louis stood, eyes on the bird. The beam felt heavier and heavier, the pain more intense. The bird watched Louis, amused by his suffering, mocking him. Wade and Tinker went on with their work, stealing anxious glances at the scene across the compound. Wade had looked at the camp clock when Louis had first lifted the beam. He became more and more conscious of how much time was passing. Five more minutes passed, then ten. Louis' arms began to waver and go numb. His body shook. The beam tipped. The guard jabbed Louis with his gun, and Louis straightened up. Less and less blood was reaching his head, and he began to feel confused. His thoughts gauzy, the camp swimming around him. He felt his consciousness slipping, his mind losing adhesion, until all he knew was a single thought. He cannot break me. Across the compound, the bird had stopped laughing. Time ticked on, and still Louis remained in the same position, conscious and yet not. The beam over his head, his eyes on the bird's face, enduring long past when his strength should have given out. Something went on inside of me, he said later. I don't know what it was. There was a flurry of motion ahead of him, the bird leaping down from the roof and charging toward him, enraged. Watanabe's fist rammed into Louis' stomach and Louis folded over in agony. The beam dropped, striking Louis' head. He flopped to the ground. When he woke, he didn't know where he was or what had happened. He saw Wade and some other POWs along with a few guards crouched around him. The bird was gone. Louis had no memory of the last several minutes and had no idea how long he'd stood there, but... Wade had looked at the clock when Louis had fallen. Louis had held the beam aloft for 37 minutes. No way his own strength. Like, <laughs> just no way. I don't even... That's exhausting. <laughs> full strength. A full strength strong man. You know what I mean? Like, there's, that's just... There's, that's supernatural. Ugh, man. Just holding the your bird. arms up yeah, that long, man. <laughs> 37 minutes? I don't even... Yeah. Oh, man. How insane. He cannot break me. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's it's also cool to know, like, it didn't. It doesn't say, like, oh, it, he found this strength within, within himself. Mm-hmm. He even says, like, I don't know where that came from. Yeah. I don't know who that was. Uh-huh. The, the Like, it says... Uh, until all he knew was a single thought, he cannot break me. Mm-hmm. Like that had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And of course we know, but mm-hmm. man, <laughs> makes me want to go and do something. I don't know. <laughs> Not this, but no, yeah. do something. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm skipping over just page after page of the bird continuing to get after him, continuing and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, The war now at this point in the book where we are is over and the commander of at the time, he's going to give a speech and and he finishes his speech. This is where we pick it up with the commander's speech finished and the POWs waiting in suspicious silence. Kono, 
which is one of the guards, invited the POWs to bathe in the Hakura River. This, too, was odd. The men had only rarely been allowed to go in the river. The POWs broke their, from their lines and began hiking down to the water, dropping clothes as they walked. Uh, Louis dragged along after them, peeled off his clothes, and waded in. All over the river, the men scattered, scrubbing their skin, unsure what was happening. Then they heard it. It was the growl of an aircraft engine, huge, low, and close. The swimmers looked up and at first saw nothing but the overcast sky. Then, there it was, bursting from the clouds, a torpedo bomber. As the men watched, the bomber dove, leveled off, and skimmed over the water, its engines screaming. The POWs looked up at it. The bomber was headed straight toward them. In the instant before the plane shot overhead, the men in the water could just make out the cockpit and inside the pilot standing. Then the bomber was right over them. On each side of the fuselage and on the underside of each wing, there was a broad white star in a blue circle. The plane was not Japanese. It was American. The plane's red code light was blinking rapidly. A radio man in the water near Louis read the signals and suddenly cried out, Ah! The war is over! In seconds... Masses of naked men were stampeding out of the river and up the hill. As the plane turned loops above, the pilot waving, the POWs swarmed into the compound, out of their minds with relief and rapture. Their fear of the guards, of the massacre they had so long awaited, was gone. Dispersed by the roar and muscle of the bomber, the prisoners jumped up and down, shouted and sobbed. Some scrambled onto the roof onto the camp roofs, waving their arms and singing out their joy to the pilot above. Others piled against the camp fence and sent it crashing over. Some found matches, and soon the entire length of the fence was burning. The Japanese shrank back and withdrew. In the midst of the running, celebrating men, Louis stood on wavering legs, emaciated, sick, and dripping wet. In his tired mind, two words were repeating themselves over and over. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> Finally. Oh, man. I don't... Whew. Can you imagine? Can you even, like... <laughs> after all, like... The the relief of, of something good that happens after just a few bad days. You know what I mean? Like, after a couple of rough days at work or something and then something finally goes right it's like ah yes you know finally can you imagine going through this literally insane amount of whatever he's gone through and then uh, finally just relief and just where you're just running naked across the beach like, <laughs> oh man i don't even uh just chills man just yeah. chills yeah. <sighs> to answer your question no i can't. <laughs> i I can't even process some of this that happened. Uh -uh. Like as I'm reading that, this is this is insane. Yeah, truly. Mm. The amount of joy they had right oh, there, man. man. I can't even. Uh. Yeah, I'm free. Mm -hmm. I'm free. Okay, uh, so just an an all-out party. That's what the the picture is. Mm -hmm. On the morning of September second, nineteen forty-five, Japan signed its formal surrender. The Second World War was over. For Louis. These were days of bliss. Though he was still sick, wasted, and weak, he glowed with euphoria such as he had never experienced. His rage against his captors was gone. Like all the men around him, he felt flush with love for everyone and everything. Only the thought of the bird gave him pause. A few days earlier, 
Louis would have bound and killed him without remorse. Now the vengeful urge no longer had sure footing. The bird was gone, his ability to reach Louis, physically at least, extinguished. At that moment, all Louis felt was rapture. Forgiveness coursed through all of the men at Naotsu. POWs doled out supplies to civilians and stood in circles of children, handing out chocolate. Louis and other POWs brought food and clothing to the guards and asked them to take it uh, home to their families. Even Kono, one of the guards, was spared. Ordered to stay in camp, he holed up in his office for 11 days, so afraid of retribution that he never once came out. When a POW opened the door, Kono gasped and ran to a corner. A few days before, he might have been... He might have met with reprisal, but today there was no such spirit. The POWs left him alone. Hmm. So, we keep saying this kind of the same <laughs> stuff, but like, can you imagine having so much joy inside of you that all fear or, or all, all notion even of retribution and vengeance is gone? Like, from moment to moment. Right. This right. moment, I would have killed you. This mm -hmm. moment, I'm letting you go free because I have so much joy in my heart. Right, yeah. After all that they've gone through. Like, that's what it wasn't, I mean, ugh. No. And, and what's the difference? Life. Mm -hmm. And just to, to bring that to kind of our discussion, uh, eternal life. Does that not do for us? Does that not give us mm -hmm. so much joy that... Right. We can say, I can forgive you. Yeah. I, I can forgive somebody for yelling at me or, you know, doing something wrong to me. Mm. If this if that's what is coursing through their veins, that right. kind of joy, mm -hmm. and it's infinitesimal to what God has given us in the gospel. Right. My goodness, man. So good. Anything to say on that? <laughs> no, just that's it. Can yeah, you say that's anything? That's good. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh so he wanted, obviously, like his whole goal throughout life, like especially early life and then even in the war, uh, one thing that kept him going was potentially the Olympics. Uh, he he tries to, to get back into it and he does really well for a little while, but uh, hurts himself and then like to the point where he can no longer run. It was something that, excuse me, um, something that he had done uh, like he, he was just so weak from all of that time that the muscles weren't properly built up. And so, uh, that, that career is over. Well, now, uh, alcohol becomes like his only hope. And so going back to those early days, uh, where it was like the only numbing thing. Now it becomes the only thing to numb all of life. Yeah. Uh, and then comes revenge, but we'll get to that here in a second. No one could reach Louis, so he's, I forgot to mention this too, he's home now uh, trying to readjust everything back home. No one could reach Louis because he had never really come home. In prison camp, he'd been beaten into dehumanized obedience to a world order in which the bird was absolute sovereign, and it was under this world order that he still lived. The bird had taken his dignity and left him feeling humiliated, ashamed, and powerless, and Louis believed that the only... Uh, that only the bird could restore him by suffering and dying in the grip of his hands. A once singularly hopeful man now believed that his only hope lay in murder. The paradox of vengefulness is that it makes men dependent upon those who have harmed them, 
believing that their release from pain will come only when they make their tormentors suffer. In seeking the bird's death to free himself, Louis had chained himself once again to his tyrant. During the war, the bird had been unwilling to let go of Louis, but after the war, Louis was unable to let go of the bird. Man, so now he's gone through all of that, was finally free, is home now, and still the stinking bird, like, it still has this grasp on him. Man, like, <laughs> again, things, something good happens, and then a setback again, just the, the continuation of this, this cycle, and, yeah. oh, man, and, and I don't know, I don't want to say it's, it's worse, it probably isn't worse, but, I mean, the psychological torment that he's probably going through at this point, compared to the physical torment, it's got to be obviously not in, in a much different way very very similar you know yeah. what i mean Ugh. Yeah. well to to know that like he goes super deep into alcohol mm -hmm. and then starts to plot revenge uh after losing so much of his life it kind of it it makes earthly sense mm -hmm. it, it oh, yeah. when i hear that i'm like yeah makes total sense to me to to know that like maybe that's where it is like maybe if i can numb myself away from it uh or if i get this one thing then i will be satisfied then all of my demons if you will will be gone then i will be happy uh and so but yet to know like for us to know that that's not true uh seeing how god is still working still moving still mm -hmm. like uh, leading him to the end of not only life and everything throughout the uh, first part of the book, but now, um, like alcohol, you won't find it there. Mm. Revenge, you won't find it there either. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now we get into, I think, kind of the most important part of the book. And it's, we're nearing the end. Um, let me make sure. Yes. We're nearing the end. Um, if you've been with us this long, <laughs> stick around. It's, it's get, it gets really good. Because in the second week of September of 1949, an angular young man climbed down from a transcontinental train and stepped into Los Angeles. His remarkably tall blonde hair fluttered on the summit of a, of a remarkably tall head, which in turn topped a remarkably tall body. He had a direct gaze, a stern jawline, and a southern sway in his voice, the product of a childhood spent on a North Carolina dairy farm. His name was Billy Graham. At 31, Graham was the youngest college president in America, manning the helm at Northwestern Schools, a small Christian Bible school, liberal arts college, and seminary in Minneapolis. He was also the vice president of Youth for Christ International, an evangelical organization. He'd been crisscrossing the world for years, plugging his faith. The results had been mixed. His last campaign in the Pennsylvania town of Altoona had met with heckling, meager attendance, and a hollering, deranged choir member who had been, who had to, who had had to be thrown out of his services, only to return repeatedly, like a fly to spilled jelly. That September, in a vacant parking lot on the corner of Washington Boulevard and Hill Street in Los Angeles. Graham and his small team threw up a 480-foot-long circus tent, set out 6,500 folding chairs, poured down acres of sawdust, 
hammered together a stage the size of a fairly spacious backyard and stood an enormous replica of an open Bible in front of it. They held a press conference to announce a three-week campaign to bring Los Angelinos to Christ. Not a single newspaper story followed. At first, Graham preached to a a half-empty tent, but his blunt, emphatic sermons got people talking. By October 16th, the day on which he had intended to close the campaign, attendance was high and growing. Graham and his team decided to keep it going. Then newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst reportedly issued a two-word order to his editors, Puff Graham. Overnight, Graham had adoring press coverage and 10,000 people packing into his tent every night. Organizers expanded the tent and piled in several thousand more chairs, but it was still so overcrowded that hundreds of people had to stand in the street, straining to hear Graham over the traffic. Film moguls, seeing leading man material, offered Graham a movie contract. Graham burst out laughing and told them he wouldn't do it for a million bucks a month. In a city that wasn't bashful about sinning, Graham had kicked off a religious revival. He asked his listeners to open their Bibles to the 8th chapter of John. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they they say unto him, Master, this woman who was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Louis was suddenly wide awake. Describing Jesus rising from his knees after a night of prayer, Graham asked his listeners how long it might have been since they'd prayed in earnest. Then he focused on Jesus bending down, his finger tracing words in the sand at the Pharisees' feet, sending the men scattering in fear. What did they see Jesus write? Graham asked. Inside himself, Louis felt something twisting. Darkness doesn't hide the eyes of God, Graham said. God takes down your life from the time you were born to the time you die, and when you stand before God on the great judgment day, you're going to say, Lord, I wasn't such a bad fellow. And they're going to pull down the screen. They're going to shoot the moving picture of your life from the cradle to the grave. And you're going to hear every thought that was going through your mind every minute of the day, every second of the minute. And you're going to hear the words that you said. And your own words and your own thoughts and your own deeds are going to condemn you as you stand before God on that day. And God is going to say, depart from me. Louis felt indignant rage flaring in him. A struck match. I am a good man, he thought. I am a good man. Even as he had this thought, he felt the lie in it. He knew what he had become. Somewhere under his anger, there was a lurking, nameless uneasiness, the shudder of sharks rasping their backs along the bottom of the raft. There was a thought he must not think, a memory he must not see. With the urgency of a bolting animal, he wanted to run. 
Graham looked out over his audience. Here tonight, there's a drowning man, a drowning woman, a drowning man, a drowning boy, a drowning girl that is lost in the sea of life. He told of hell and salvation, men saved and men lost, always coming back to the stooped figure drawing letters in the sand. Louis grew more and more angry and more and more spooked. Every head bowed and every eye closed, said Graham, offering a traditional invitation to repentance, a declaration of faith, and absolution. Louis grabbed Cynthia's arm, stood up, and bowled his way from the tent. Somewhere in the city, a siren began to low wail. The sound, rising and falling, slowly carried through the tent, picked up by the microphone that was recording the sermon. That night, Louis lay helpless as the belt whipped his head. The body that hunched over him was that of the bird. The face was that of the devil. Under the tent that night, Graham spoke of how the world was in an age of war, an age defined by persecution and suffering. Why, Graham asked, is God silent while good men suffer? He began his answer by asking his audience to consider the evening sky. If you look into the heavens tonight, on this beautiful California night, I see the stars and can see the, the footprints of God, he said. I think to myself, my father, my heavenly father, hung them there with a flaming fingertip and holds them there with the power of his omnipotent hand. And he runs the whole universe. And he's not too busy running the whole universe to count the hairs on my head and see a sparrow when it falls because God is interested in me. God spoke in creation. Louis was winding tight. He remembered the day when he and Phil, slowly dying on the raft, had slid into the doldrums. Above, the sky had been a swirl of light. Below, the stilled ocean had mirrored the sky, its clarity broken only by a leaping fish. Awed to silence, forgetting his thirst and his hunger, forgetting that he was dying, Louis had known only gratitude. That day, he had believed that what lay around them was the work of infinitely broad, benevolent hands, a gift of compassion. In the years since, that thought had been lost. Graham went on. He spoke of God reaching into the world through miracles and the intangible blessings that give men the strength to outlast their sorrows. God works miracles one after another, he said. God says, if you suffer, I'll give you the grace to go forward. Louis found himself thinking of the moment at which he had woken in the sinking hull of the Green Hornet, the wires that had trapped him in a moment earlier now inexplicably gone. And he remembered the Japanese bombers swooping over the rafts, riddling them with bullets, and yet not a single bullet had struck him, Phil, or Mac. He had fallen into unbearably cruel worlds, and yet he had borne them. When he turned these memories in his mind, in his mind the only explanation he could find was one in which the impossible was possible. What God asks of men, said Graham, is faith. His invisibility is the truest test of that faith. To know who sees him, God makes himself unseen. Louis was on the raft. There was gentle Phil crumpled before him, Max breathing skeleton, endless oceans stretching in every direction, the sun lying over them, the cunning bodies of the sharks wading, circling. He was a body on a raft, dying of thirst. He felt words whisper from his, his swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept, a promise he had allowed himself to forget until just this instant. If you will save me, I will serve you forever. And then, standing under a circus tent on a clear night in downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt rain falling. It was the last flashback he would ever have. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely alive. He began walking. This is it, said Graham. 
God has spoken to you. You come on. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louis all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to his cache of liquor. It was the time of night when the need usually took hold of him, but for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathering packs of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed home to his mother when he was believed dead. He walked to Barnsdale Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he had been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down, and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. Yep. I don't know how you follow that, man. Golly. I mean, just, I mean, what beauty. And and to think. <clears throat> so, you know, we see him being brought to salvation here. And we've talked this whole time about every part of the story in this book of how, of what he's endured and, and how it's just unfathomable. Like, we literally cannot even comprehend it. And it's so horrible and just so bad Yet, you and I know he deserved all that and worse. Like, we deserve that. Like, that's as horrible and bad as that is. We deserve nothing better than that. But then, because of Christ, that we don't have to. (laughs) I I don't even, man, that's, even in that, you know, I mean, you think of like Job, like that's, in the midst of all that, I don't, I don't deserve anything better than this. Yeah. But yet we get it. We get better than that, and we will for eternity. Ugh. Man. Golly. Yeah. yeah, the fact that we're breathing, speaking right now mm-hmm. is, a, is a grace. Yeah. Yep. And mm. to also, I mean, just from, from that vantage point, the... You know the suffering that he went through um, still holds n- not even a candle to what Christ went through, suffering mm. the wrath of man and the wrath of God uh, for three days, being you know uh, not only everything that happened before, like all, all of the, the the crown of thorns, the um, the beating, the you know whips in his back, tearing the skin from his flesh pulling out his beard, so on and so forth. Um, but then to suffer the wrath of God, to to say to his father, why have you forsaken me? Um, cannot even imagine that kind of darkness. And yet, that is what makes a story like this even possible, even mm-hmm. remotely mm-hmm. redeemable. It's what makes, like we can read this with tears of joy, 
and not tears of utter despair knowing mm-hmm. what a, there's nothing there's nothing better than than or there's nothing worse than this but there's also nothing better than this right but for us as as redeemed christians to know mm. it gets a lot better because it was much worse right. for one mm. now mm. i know that there's like there's there's issues with billy graham out there and of course the whole but with heads bowed and and all mm. of that like the altar call yeah um but to like truly exposit some scripture uh and then of course you know like everything that post like when he would leave then they were like what do we do now like we do we go to this church or this church and so they weren't given a ton of information but yeah um but so i mean with with all of that you still see uh god moving and saving and and in real ways like for louis especially and Mm -hmm. uh just amazing yeah there's only one last part of the book that we wanted to get to because in early 1997 uh just a, a little bit before louis dies he writes a letter to Matsuhiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked then about you and was told that you had probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you also would become a Christian. On the morning of January 22, 1998, snow sifted gently over the village once known as Neotsu. Louis Zamperini, for four days, short of his 81st birthday, stood in a swirl of white beside a road flanked in bright drifts. His body was worn and weathered, his skin scratched with lines of mapping the miles of his life. His old riot of black hair was now a translucent scrim of white, but his blue eyes still threw sparks. On the ring finger of his right hand, a scar was still visible, the last mark that the Green Hornet had left in the world. At last, it was time. Louis extended his hand, and in it was placed the Olympic torch. His legs could no longer reach and push as they once had, but they were still sure beneath him. He raised the torch, bowed, and began running. All he could see in every direction were smiling Japanese faces. There were children peeking out of hooded coats, men who had once worked beside the POW POW slaves in the steel mill, Civilians snapping photographs, clapping, waving, cheering Louis on, and 120 Japanese soldiers formed into two columns, parting to let him pass. Louis ran through the place where cages had once held him, where a black-eyed man had crawled inside him. But the cages were long gone, and so was the bird. There was no trace of them here among the voices. The falling snow 
and the old and joyful man running. <laughs> man, what a story. What a life. Yeah. To say to those man. men, and, and even to mm. write in his letter to the bird, uh, I forgive you, mm-hmm. and I, I want you to become a Christian. God shook that man Mm -hmm. to his core. There's no other way to explain that. Yeah. Like, even as a believer now, I can't even fathom some of that, like that Mm -hmm. level of forgiveness. And yet we just talked about it goes beyond (laughs) that and what Christ has done for us. Yeah. Not only saying, I forgive you, but also saying, you deserve to die. I will die in your place. Mm -hmm. You couldn't live up to what the Father has set as standards to live with him, I will live that life for you. Mm. I will then raise from the dead so that I can uh, prove that everything is once and, and for all done, that uh, that life with God is a possibility. It's it's for sure. It is. Mm. Uh, it can actually happen, and it is all yours. Mm. Here, I give it to you as a gift of grace. Man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, can I, <laughs> can we close with anything else? Uh, no. I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, man, yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. Uh, in that, it was a journey, and it was a a bit of a not a derailing of our. It was a bit out of the norm, yeah, if you will, mm-hmm. for for what we usually do. Uh, but thanks for sticking with us on that, and. Uh, And I think we'll close with these words from a man named Ivan Mesa. Louis' life story is not about the innate human power to forgive. In fact, when we consider his life, we see the complete opposite, a total inability to overcome sin and the reaping of its disastrous fruit apart from God's grace. Louis' survivor instincts, those same instincts that kept him alive at sea and in prison, offered no help when he returned home. Unlike the war... When I had faced obstacles and overcome them, this time I did not have the same self-confidence, he later recounted. Then I'd taken survival training courses, knew I was in great physical shape. He had realized the greatest enemy was not without, but within. Although no longer a prisoner of war, he had remained a slave to sin. Conversion for Louis was not a postscript or an unobtrusive footnote in an otherwise heroic life. No, Conversion was the preface that put his entire life in context. The Lord's sovereign work in saving Louis, in breaking him with a reality of his sin and turning him toward Christ in faith, made sense of all that had gone before and all that followed. In short, the story of Louis Zamperini is that of a man unbroken by war, but broken by grace. And as David reminds us, a broken and contrite heart God does not despise. Until next time, this has been Aaron Alvarado and me, Jacob Simmons, and we are made for another world. Join us next week as we sing and study in the city of Roswell.